Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, no bombastic intro this week. Uh, it will become apparent very, very quickly why. Uh, but this week I am joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara. Hello. James Dyer. Hello. And Amon Warman. Hello. How are you all? Good. Good, thank you. Yeah, all right. Good, excellent. I always have to start with the tricky questions. Um <laughs> Wanted to really take you back. Um, but before we begin, uh, the reason there is no bombast uh, this week is I wanted to take time out to talk about and dedicate this podcast to Seb Patrick, who died this week at the age of just 37. Seb was many things. He was a writer for all kinds of outlets, including, I'm proud to say, Empire. He was a podcaster with the likes of Cinematic Universe and Mifflinfinity, his excellent office rewatch pod under his belt. And he was a huge, huge, huge geek with encyclopedic knowledge about all kinds of subjects from comic books to Red Dwarf, from Doctor Who. He interviewed Tom Baker for the mag, and I'll never forget how happy he was to do that, even if he didn't get a word in edgeways, uh, to Liverpool Football Club, from Formula One to films. His knowledge was prodigious, but he never wore it in a smug fashion. He was kind, he was generous, he was gracious, and though I only met him once in person, we interacted virtually every day on Twitter, and I regarded him as a friend. His sudden death at the weekend absolutely floored me. And not least because of all the things that Seb was, first and foremost, he was a loving husband to Joe and a doting father to Lois. Told you he was a comic book fan. Seb's passing has left a huge hole in many communities and many lives, but none greater than in his family's hearts. Uh, and this week, the outpouring of love and affection for him on Twitter and across other social media platforms has been incredible. And nowhere has that been effectively more shown than in the GoFundMe that was set up by one of his friends, Ian Symes, uh, to help Joe and Lois in the immediate aftermath and beyond. It's already at an incredible £26,000 and counting, but that money is deeply necessary as Seb didn't have life insurance. Uh, Seb never appeared on the Empire podcast, but uh, he was absolutely going to end up in the rotating fourth chair at some point. But if you followed him on Twitter, or you read his stuff in the mag or or in any of those other outlets that he wrote for, or you listen to one of his podcasts, you'll know what a great guy he was. So if you can contribute, please do so. Uh, go to GoFundMe.com and search for In Loving Memory of Seb Patrick and just contribute what you can. And Amon, I know that you were also friends with Seb. Yeah, um, you mentioned one of the podcast he did there was Cinematic Universe, uh, which I had guested on a few times. It was actually just uh, over, just about um, four months ago, we were doing live streams of the Avengers movies and Spider-Verse uh, with Seb and Joe and James. Um, and, you know, you mentioned his encyclopedic knowledge. It really was encyclopedic. This wasn't like, you know, let me just quickly check Wikipedia. He would just know stuff. I consider myself, you know, fairly knowledgeable when it comes to comics, it paled in comparison to Seb. And mm. it's one thing just to know that stuff, to be able to talk about it in a way that encourages people to find out more about the things he's talking about. To, to do that, it's, it's not a skill which everyone has, and he did it extremely well. And just the, the the, the, the GoFundMe you mentioned, 
when you're doing podcasts or content like this, it can feel solitary to an extent. Um, mm. you, you don't really know sort of how it's going to be received. I remember sort of uh, James Hunt, uh, who was sort of the co-host of the Cinematic Universe podcast in recent days, that, that Seb didn't know sort of if, pe- if he was well-liked or if he was just humoured. Mm. Um, but when you do stuff well, that has an impact on people. And you can see that um, in the GoFundMe. And it's not just um, what he was doing on sort of uh, Cinematic Universe, it's his Twitter presence. Um, people felt like they knew him even though they hadn't met him, as you say. Um, yeah. And that kind of person is just rare, is rare. And I remember, you know, sort of even to uh, asking to, to be on those uh, live streams, Seb was like, you know, I'm surprised that you still sort of want to come on, uh, given to everything you're doing. But I always want to come on podcasts like that because I love talking about things I like to talk about, talking about geeky stuff with mm-hmm. people who know their stuff with people I like talking about. The, the type of environment that people like Seb fostered, you wanted to be around those type of people. Um, so yeah, when I heard the news, I was shocked um, and yeah. very, very saddened because there's, he's just a rare, rare kind of person that you know has that combination of, of qualities and is going to be extremely missed, extremely missed. Seb Patrick who died just 37. Okay, should we get back to the knob jokes? <laughs> People wouldn't know it was us if we didn't, would they? Precisely, precisely. Um, I don't know whether there are any knob jokes in the film fact section, which is how we're going to start ish this week's podcast but it is the beloved film fact section the one that people just can't get enough of including of course helen and james who love this section so so dearly in case you're new to the empire podcast uh so we start the we start the show with a fact section in which the three colleagues of such lethal cunning i nearly called them something else um (laughs) the three colleagues of such lethal cunning impress or try to impress me with an arcane or obscure Movie fact, and then I give a point to the winner. Helen is currently in first place with a squillion points. Am I even? I, have um, not, I no don't idea. know. I think you are. I am. Okay. Uh, James is way behind with no points, and <laughs> <laughs> and then the fourth chair, which this week has um, a mon in it, uh, is yeah, kind of only a couple of points behind Helen, I think, with uh, ten trillion and one, which is not quite a squillion. Uh, so let me see. Who do I start with? Helen. I don't think Hello. I've started with you for a while. So no, I'm going to start with so. you. Uh, so I can get this out of the way soon. So um, I think I seem to remember James getting bonus points for dogs uh, last just, time. Just, just before we start, Helen, which chapter of your book is this from? <laughs> <laughs> this is not. Most of them haven't been technically from the book. They've been just. If you're stuff reading out an ISBN number, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I am not, no. But I am going to deal with a, uh, a little bit of an urban legend in Hollywood. So Susan Orlean, the woman who wrote <laughs> Adaptation. Sorry. Great film. Urban legend. It's a great, oh, yeah, film. great film. Yeah, great film. Right. So Susan Orleon, who wrote uh, Adaptation, was played by Meryl Streep in the film. Uh, obviously, is a great writer, uh, fascinating woman. And at one point, she decided to investigate Rin Tin Tin, right? The dog the, the star dog. of many films of the 1920s uh, and so on. And, um, and she 
published a, a, a story, which has kind of become legend, saying that Rin Tin Tin was the write-in winner of the very first Best Actor Oscar, right? <laughs> and that the, the nascent Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences basically covered it up because they wanted to gain credibility and artistic standing. Because they were cats. Because <laughs> they were cats. Because <laughs> they were, they were cat people, um, and they thought it wouldn't look good if a dog won Best Actor, and so it's all a conspiracy against Rin Tin Tin. So I've I've kind of been reading up on this, and Rin Tin Tin's story is genuinely fascinating. Um, so he was born on a battlefield in World War One. He was born in the Meuse in World War One, and this uh, American soldier called Leland or Lee Duncan found him and his fellow newborn puppies practically dead. Uh, their mother was nearly dead and was sort of snarling, trying to keep them safe in this corner of this ruined barn. And he basically took the the dogs and tried to nurse them back to health. The mother died anyway, but he took the puppies uh, and smuggled, basically, I think, smuggled them back to America on so the troop ship. That Rin Tin Tin got better, but his mother went quick. I am saying that. It's a true Hamiltonian hip hop story. Um, so basically, Lee got kind of obsessed with these dogs. Um, so the uh, his his sister puppy, Nanette, they call, he called them Rin Tin Tin and Nanette after some dolls that were popular with the soldiers in France. Nanette sadly died before they got back to California of pneumonia. Um, he got another girl German Shepherd puppy called Nanette 2, uh, just to kind of hang out with Rin Tin Tin. <laughs> but he just became obsessed with teaching this dog tricks. And so when he found out that, you know, films sometimes use dogs, he spotted an opportunity because um, they were they were doing contests because German Shepherds were kind of a novelty breed at the time. People didn't really have them. So he was showing how high they could jump and all these tricks they could do. And, um, and he, the dog looks good on camera. So he basically started walking up and down Poverty Row, which was where all the little studios were in Hollywood, trying to get someone to take an interest in his dog. They ended up at Warner Brothers which was a quite small studio at the time, where Rin Tin Tin became, not kidding, the saviour of the studio because he was so, um, he was such a massive box office draw. At one point, Rin Tin Tin in the 1920s was earning $2,000 a week. Wow. So the average labourer <laughs> earned like $1,000 wow. a year. He was just sniffing ground up bonio. He was just. I mean, yeah, he just injected it, all got it into very, his veins. Yeah, yeah, very baroque at that point, for sure. I believe um, he invented dogging. No, Chris. He didn't need to. He had all the bitches piling for him, you know? Oh, it was fine. there we go. Oh, my God, Helen. I promised, I promised to people knob guides, and that's what we're going to give them. Anyway. So there, there had been a dog star before uh, called Strongheart, but Rin Tin Tin just completely took over. Um, basically, every time that Warner Brothers seemed to be in financial trouble, they would release a Rin Tin Tin film and the studio would be back on top. As far as I can tell, however, and I hate to burst the bubble, Rin Tin Tin was not the first winner of the Best Actor Oscar. That That is merely an urban legend. But Rin Tin Tin and Rin Tin Tin the second, his son, and Rin Tin Tin the third, and indeed fourth, um, had a very long career in movies and remained a box office draw for a really long time afterwards. Move to disqualify. Why? <laughs> <laughs> On account of it not being a fact. But that's the point. I'm debunking that. What, what was your fact? What My was your fact, fact was that Rin Tin Tin saved Warner Brothers, but didn't win Best Picture, Best Actor at the first Oscars. <laughs> Honestly, 
Chris, you have to get, you have to accept what you can get now because I don't care anymore and I've finished researching most of the book. You were so close to having a great fact. Yeah, I was like, oh, Helen's won. There's no point us doing it. There's no point. And then at the last second, it wasn't actually true. $2,000 a week for a dog. That should be enough. All right, okay, okay, I'm going to give you a chance to rescue yourself. Zero in on one thing from that. Are you choosing the 2000 Sure. Rin Tin Tin was paid £2,000 a week. I will. Uh, dollars. Okay. Rin Tin Tin was paid $2,000 a week. That is and Helen's saved Warner Brothers. <laughs> and saved Warner Brothers. <laughs> From falling down a well. Yes. What's that Rin Tin Tin? We need to release another one of your movies? Okay. Uh, poor Rin Tin Tin. Because um, I presume he's dead now, right? Um, I think Rin Tin Tin, the fifth or something might still he be He lives around. in a farm mm-hmm. yeah. in upstate, upstate New York. Upstate, so, yeah, upstate. So it's not like a Walt Disney's <laughs> Frozen Head situation, is it? It's not. You know, Rin Tin Tin's <laughs> not still making decisions at Warner Brothers, is he? Although it would explain I mean... some of their decisions recently. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of this movie, Rin Tin Tin's Frozen Head? <laughs> <laughs> Debut it on Disney Plus. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> <laughs> That went weird quickly. Um, yes. All right. So Helen's fact, as far as I can see, is Rin Tin Tin's frozen severed head is still running Warner Brothers. And that's a good fact. Yeah, it's but a solid didn't fact. win the first Best Actor but Oscar. Didn't win the first Best Actor Contrary Oscar. Contrary to I mean, Susan Orleans. I'm on, is, uh, is your fact also oh, just simply saying someone's name and then going, they didn't win an Oscar either? Because, if, you know, that we could be done in seconds here. As... Uh- as tempting as it as it is to have that be so short and sweet and lovely, I oh, have. Please be oh, so short and sweet and lovely. <laughs> uh, my fact is actually inspired by Seb Patrick, whose last tweet was about the Truman Show, and my. Oh fact, my god! Which is very very fitting, by the way. We didn't even mention that, did we? His last tweet, uh, which he didn't obviously know was going to be his last tweet, was uh, that gif from the Truman Show where Truman says. If I don't, if I don't see you, yeah. Good morning, good evening, and good night. It's absolutely perfect as these things yeah, go. It really is. Yeah. So my fact is about the Truman Show. It's about Christoph, um, and who was originally cast as Christoph because it was not Ed Harris. It was the late great Dennis Hopper um, who mm-hmm. was cast as the villain of the movie. And obviously, in the nineties, he had been on Hollywood villain duties a couple of times in both Speed and Waterworld. So it was a, you know, fitting casting. And Hopper actually made an agreement with the producer, Scott Rudin, that he'd start filming the movie, but if it didn't work out, if his work didn't measure up, he'd be let go. And within two days, he was sacked um, from the movie. Um, So when he was let go, there was no replacement uh, in place. So uh, where, and, and, the director, Peter Weir, later admitted that he had to sort of get a handle on Christoph. He hadn't ha- gotten, gotten the handle on Christoph at that point. But Paramount was getting antsy and they were almost about to shut down the film. Uh, that is when uh, one, of the ta- one, of the talent, one of the talent agencies from Hollywood called and mentioned Ed Harris's name. And Ed Harris happened to live very close to the set. Uh, so he uh, came down, visited the set, met Peter Weir, and... Uh, they sort of, you know, Peter Weir liked him and signed him on the spot before he'd even sort of spoken to his agents. Um, and Harris only had a weekend to sort of get to grips uh, with Christoph, uh, but he managed to do it. And he's amazing in the film. That is my fact. Okay. Interesting. 
interesting. My favourite Ed, Ed Harris performance is the outtakes from The Rock. Have you ever seen the outtakes from The Rock where he's just smashing things and screaming oh, and yelling? And it's just Ed Harris on a tear. It's brilliant. My favourite thing it. from the uh, The Rock outtakes is when Sean Connery's trying to get the lift. He's pressing the lift doors and he's trying to get them to close. And they won't <laughs> close because, you know, something's gone wrong. And he just simply goes, close, <laughs> I really need to see this. I have not seen the outtakes from The Rock yet. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, a, it's, it's brilliant. A, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really, brilliant. really good. Yeah, Jimbo, what is oh, your fact? My fact is not, I'm very sorry to say, about The Rock, although next week's almost certainly will be at this point. Okay, um, let me just take no, the science me- timer and put it over here. You, you have <laughs> five hours. Right. Let's see if I can run out the clock. Right. Uh, <laughs> given how long it's been since we've all been to a proper screening in a cinema and we're all two desperately days. missing popcorn, which in Helen's case is two days. Uh, in my case, the last thing I saw in the cinema was Military Wives. Oh. Kill me. Half of Military Wives. <laughs> half of Military Wives. Actually, it wasn't even half. It was basically a third of it, but that doesn't Gosh. matter. Um, I thought I'd wheel out a corn-based fact for you today. So you remember in the popular motion picture Interstellar, uh, Matthew McConaughey lives on a farm with big-ass fields of corn, yeah? And Mm -hmm. this, so obviously they needed corn for this, but it didn't have to be any old corn, okay? This had to be special corn. It had to be inspiring corn. It had to be the kind of corn that an astronaut could stare at while, you know, pondering existential dilemmas and musing over the inner workings of space and time. You know, that, that kind of corn. So proper philosophical corn. Now, Nolan's script for Interstellar called for this kind of mythic corn to be around a farmhouse near some mountains. Now, I don't know how much you know about corn, but that's not generally where fucking corn grows. Um, And the production wanted to shoot near the Rockies in Calgary, and they grow fuckle corn there because there's a lot of wind in Calgary, and it has a tendency to kill the corn. So, after spending some time searching for this location and not finding it, Nolan had come up with absolutely nothing. But being Christopher Nolan, he refused to change his mind because he wanted and I quote, to get some sense that this corn was being farmed somewhere it shouldn't be, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> so, unwilling to back down, unwilling to back down, he decided to ask for help. He did what any, any sane person would do when looking for a great fuck-off cornfield in the mountains. He got in touch with He Who Walks Behind the Rose, the fill-in of Stephen King's Children of the Corn? Very close, very close. He called Zack Snyder. Now, Zack Snyder... <laughs> Release the Snyder Cobb. <laughs> Release the Snyder Cobb, yes, indeed. Zack Snyder had indeed run into a very similar problem when shooting Man of Steel, so he needed a lot of corn. So he solved that by planting 200 acres of corn for the Kent's farm. So what Nolan did was he called up Snyder and pumped him for agricultural tips. I beg your then, pardon? Presumably aided by a shovel and, you know, a few tons of manure, uh, Nolan, or let's be honest, probably the people working on his set, because Just you know, probably. They, had, yeah. they had no chairs to sit on, so probably needed something to do. You there, start digging. They planted 500 acres of corn around a farmhouse that they also built just outside Calgary, and then another 350 acres of corn at a second location just for shits and giggles. Now, they grew this corn, they watered this corn, they fed this corn, they loved this corn, they possibly even sang to this corn, whatever it takes to make it grow. And once they had grown it, once it was eight feet tall and impenetrably thick, they drove McConaughey's truck through it at 60 miles an hour and set fire to the fucker as well. All good. 
all good. It was Nolan's corn. He can do what he likes with it. It's all fine. So, but the best part of this is, so the corn grew so well <laughs> that even after running over it with a truck and burning a whole chunk of it, they still managed to harvest this corn and sold it at a profit. Wow. Proving at a profit consisting on where they actually, you know, for the set. I did, they didn't make that the whole movie's production in the sale of corn. <laughs> I should make that absolutely clear. But, but they did sell it at a profit, proving that if the whole filmmaking thing ever goes sideways, Nolan can always make it as a farmer. I thought everybody knew that. Knew what? The thing about the corn on Interstellar. I gotta say, the, correct, I, the question, I, Helen, I did, is: I did, not did know Chris, Chris know? Yeah. <laughs> did Chris know? Hmm. Well, well, well. The answer to that question, Helen, is no. I did wow. not know that. Yes, vindicated by Chris's ignorance. I've always wondered. I've always wondered where cornfields come from. Like, did they do that for science as well? Yeah. Yes. As he, you know, did they do it for Superman three when Superman saves that little kid? Or is it a cornfield? That might just be like a that tall was a grass wheat field, field. I think it's a wheat Anytime field. Anytime corn yeah. appears in movies, it has been planted by Christopher Nolan or Zack Snyder. Or his minions. I mean, that's yeah. not a fact, though. So that's a hundred percent true, Helen. I, I challenge you to prove it. <laughs> well, say, I mean, in that case, go ahead and, and prove that you know Rin Tin Tin didn't get disqualified from the first best actor because you know there's about as much evidence. They don't call him the king of corn for nothing, Helen. They don't call him the king of corn at all. <laughs> what you're saying is my fact is the only indisputable, absolute, definite fact. In this section, to hang the, on, to hang the- on. No, my fact is factual. The bit that I made up about him being responsible for all corn on planet Earth might not be a hundred percent accurate. Okay. But the actual interstellarness of it is a hundred percent true from the from the mouth of Nolan himself. Sadly, your fact is also the only fact that I one hundred percent knew beforehand. Um, so I'm afraid on on those grounds, I'm out. Um, so it comes down to Helen, whose fact was. Included in there somewhere, and <laughs> and James, who has a fact, both fact. Honestly, you should have you should have just gone with the Rin Tin Tin, didn't you? Know, Look, I'm the, not going to here. I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and misinform you. Like what I was doing was debunking a fact, which James has done in the past and been rewarded for, and I get a dollar abuse for. A dollar abuse, literally. Oh my god! Fair, I have done it in the past. I have never been rewarded for it. I've only ever been ridiculed for it. Sadly, I'm in the pocket of Big Cat. So I'm afraid I can't. That's I can't a reward. lie. You're a dog person. I am absolutely a dog person. But despite that, Helen, I'm afraid. That's fine. I'm afraid that this week's winner, incredibly, somehow, I think this may be either the third week in a row or third week out of four, James Dyer. You can just call me the fact master. Uh, no, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. You are indeed a colleague of unusually nuanced taste. <laughs> Or ignorance in not knowing a very well-known fact, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, shots fired. Shots fired. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't, you know, as you can find out later on when I talk to Seth Rogen, I have very, very minimal um, insight into how any movie is made these days. So, yeah. But yes, that is it for our, our film fact section. Forgot to give it a name this week. Some people wrote in with names, but I don't have my internet up, so I can't find them. So I'm just going to go. Someone suggested naming things after the uh, MCU. And I, we had Captain America, the fact Avenger recently, mm-hmm. which is true. You can't really do it with Iron Man. You can't really do it with the Guardians Incredible Hulk. Guardians of the Facts. Guardians of the Facts. Factacy. What kind of fact is this? What kind of fact is this? <laughs> I think it works. Fla- fact Panther? No, probably not. <laughs> fact Panther. 
What kind? What kind of? Okay, yeah, this was the inflection. What kind <laughs> wow, of fact it took you is a while this? To get that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. We'll go with that for this week's. But this week's winner is James Dyer. Round of applause, everybody. <laughs> and that is it for the fact section tempo was not specified <laughs> <laughs> time now for our first guest this week and it is the wonderful Shailene Woodley who is the star of this week's Endings Beginnings a film which sees her torn between uh, Helen see if you can get, get on board with this Sebastian Stan and Jamie Dornan oh no poor don't you her. hate those really relatable <laughs> Situations that movies throw up. Honestly, I mean, it's just my average Tuesday, you know, it's really <laughs> super relatable. You'll know her, of course, from films like the Divergent series, the, the two of them that got made anyway, uh, The Descendants, and of course, Big Little Lies as well. Uh, I spoke to her on Zoom, the dreaded Zoom, boo, boo, boo to Zoom, this week. Uh, you know, other platforms are available. <laughs> and, uh, this week, and she was in a car, but she wasn't going anywhere now uh, because she just wanted somewhere quiet to talk to me rather than in a house where I people thought that going was a nuts. Sorry. I thought it was a metaphor as well. It was a metaphor for me, certainly, in a car, but not going anywhere. But anyway, <laughs> here I am talking to Shailene Woodley. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast in lockdown, of course, uh, by Shailene Woodley, star of Endings, Beginnings. How are you? I'm excellent, actually. How are you? Uh, you know what? I'm okay, considering everything that's going on in the world right now. I'm all right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's such a wild thing, right? Because one day you have crazy I feel like it, the the highs are real high right now and the lows are real low. And it's just trying to find the balance between the two is is never an easy feat, but can have, can it can it can be accomplished. Absolutely. And of course, you know, how how's your day been so far? Are you are you are you good? Today's one of the good days? Day's good. Yeah, you know, I'm in Los Angeles, so it's morning time for me and so far, so good. I had a great breakfast and we're <laughs> <laughs> This is why people listen to the Emperor podcast, because they want to know what you had for breakfast. It's like, it's an audio version of Instagram. Oh God, you know what? There's this like local, there's this local coffee shop that just does breakfast really, really well. And it is so amazing that they're finally back open. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so good. It's so good that places are, are finally opening again. Um, but generally speaking, how has your lockdown been, Shailene? Have you have you have you taken this time to to learn any new skills, learn a language? What have you been doing? I actually have. Yeah, I uh, took a lot of time to practice my Spanish. I'm not still not fluent, but one day I think I'm a little bit closer than I was pre quarantine. Um, mm-hmm. And then I've just honestly taken a lot of time to work on myself. I think that, you know, when you're confined in spaces, you're really required to dig deep into the wells of who you are and what Mm -hmm. you want and what you don't want and reflect on your life and observe what's working and what's not working. So I kind of did all of that hard work and, Mm. and now I'm, uh, now I'm just trying to figure out how to settle into this new society. How about you? <laughs> um, um, yeah, it's been pretty busy for me actually. It's uh, it's been it's been pretty crazy. I haven't had as much time to work on myself um, as perhaps as perhaps you have. But uh, it's but then again, where do you begin with me? That's the, <laughs> that's the thing. You know, if I, if I start working on myself, I'll never stop. But uh, but that's that's really interesting that you you say that actually because you know I, you've always struck me as someone who is 
very in touch with your feelings. You're very in touch with where you are in the world right now. I mean, you've come close to, in fact, you did quit acting uh, at least once. You, you, you may have quit in the last two weeks again. I, I, I don't know, but <laughs> it seems to me that you're always someone who's taking stock of yourself and where you are and how you fit into, into the world. Yes, I try to. You know, I think it's, for me, I don't know how I can be of service to anyone else if I don't work on myself or if I don't try and maintain some level of homeostasis. Um, mm. And and look, you know, I'm also in my late 20s. It's it's the time, I think, for most of us when we really begin to re-identify ourselves and, and understand who we want to be for the next chapters of our lives. And so self-reflection just, it is very important to me. I think it's it's easy to project onto others all of the bits that we just simply haven't worked on ourselves. And I'm not a fighter, have no tolerance for fighting. So mm. if I'm, if I'm going to have a kind conversation with someone, I need to be able to have a kind conversation with myself first. Is work on the horizon for you? Uh, Cause I know some actors are, are beginning to return to work somehow in, you know, in lockdown. You know what? I'm actually, I'm doing one day. It's a very small, it's a small indie film and I'm just doing it to support my friend who's directing her first film. Um, but I'm going to work one day this week on Thursday. I did my COVID test this morning. I got all the guidelines. It's going to be really strange. You know, one of the greatest things about a movie set is you get to interact with like a hundred new people, different crew members. And now there's different sectors of and phases of, you know, people who are in certain groups, people who can talk to per- certain people, people who can't. The whole crew has to wear masks. It's a very, it's going to be interesting to see this, you know, kind of new world in Hollywood because part of the magic is the ability to talk with everyone. So I hope that somehow that can be saved despite the, you know, necessary safety guidelines that the CDC has recommended. Oh yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's going to be a very very strange new world for for a while, and hopefully we'll go back the to wild, normal. The wild wild west again. With iPhones. <laughs> With iPhones. We, don't, we don't have blocks in our revolvers. We've got iPhones and Instagram. <laughs> this is this is true. But I, I think honestly, uh, you know, from, from my point of view as a, as someone who regularly visits film sets, uh, that's gonna be taken away from me for the for the foreseeable future. So we're gonna have to honestly the the the, the situation's gonna be you're gonna have to be on the set holding up an iPhone and that's gonna be the set visit. You know, this is it. This is what you could yeah. have been on. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So wild. Ooh. <laughs> it's gonna be so strange. But but I imagine um, and I imagine it's difficult as well talking about a, a film uh, that you shot over two years ago now as well but <laughs> I imagine Endings Beginnings was a really interesting immersive experience it, it's, it, it feels to me like that is the exactly the sort of set that you're talking about where you're, you're, you're intermingling with all kinds of people and all kinds of incredible brains it was I mean you know I still think I, I took away so many so many things from that project, but mostly the ability to improvise an entire movie. It really allows you to contemplate where your own limits and vulnerability lie Mm -hmm. and where your own limits in truth and honesty lie. Mm -hmm. Because I think constantly, you know, we're, we're bullshitting everyone around us. That's just all we do. We're all professional bullshitters in this world. And, um, you know, saying we're good, we're fine. We're on the inside. We're having mental breakdowns and emotional breakdowns. So when you improvise a movie, you, you have to really reconcile the fact that you can't bullshit as much because you're trying to 
honor a character and yet you're honoring that character through your own rawness and your own realness. Um, and that was something that was really interesting to me and, and really fun and fascinating and scary. And uh, working with Sebastian Stan and Jamie Dornan was amazing because they both were so down to play. And our director, Drake Dreamus, who I've been a fan of for many, many years, mm. created such a safe space for us to really have conversations that were difficult or do things that were embarrassing um, or that left us feeling you know, ashamed of decisions that we made. And yet there was no judgment. There was only the freedom of expression and the freedom of creativity. And uh, I, I mean, nothing kind of forces you to be present like improvisation. And mm. um, so in that, in that regard, this movie was the ultimate creative experience. Mm. Is that is that something you know? Whenever people hear improv, obviously, I think they their minds go to comedy and yes and and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, when it's applied dramatically, it's very very different, obviously. But you know, did you have uh, did you have a background in improv? Did, have you have you ever taken classes? Have you have you done that sort of that that side of thing before? I remember did improv when I was a kid, maybe like seven, eight, nine, and acting classes that I did, but. But that's it. I mean, I think the improv is, you know, the, the hardest thing about improv is, again, like learning to just be present because that's all that's required. You're just constantly reacting to what's in front of you um, and to not to get out of your head and get out of a place of self-judgment because it's very easy to self-judge <laughs> when you're saying things that you wouldn't normally say. Um, and yet needing to like feel the emotion around them. So getting out of that place of insecurity and really just being okay with your freak flag flying um, <laughs> is, is the key to improv. And in terms of the overall arc of the movie, do you sit down with Drake beforehand and do you know where your character's going? Do you know how it's going to end, for example? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I know that... I think I think we had a rough idea of where we wanted her to be, but we didn't know what she would be until we saw how she was in reference to the characters around her. If that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Yeah. So, and this is this is sort of how I work on all films. I never quite know who the characters are that I'm playing until I'm about halfway through the movie because everyone around you influences that character. Mm -hmm. The way that they deliver their lines, elicits different reactions from you. The way that the makeup artist, you know, does your makeup elicits a different feeling. Every single person on a film set helps create a character. I really believe that. And so when a movie is improvised, it's even harder to assume who that character is because you don't know what one scene is going to provide for her on page mm. 76 in comparison to page 25. You mentioned there that sometimes you don't know who your character is until halfway through. That must be frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating in retrospect when you watch it and you're like, damn, I wish I had made that decision differently. But I just, I don't, you know, I think I'm such a believer in, in um, honest moments and in being present. And uh, if I, I feel that if I come up with such a strict, concrete, preconceived idea of who this person is, then I'm not staying open to the environment around her in any given scene or any given scenario. And 
you obviously have rough ideas. You know the boundaries and the borders of who someone is. But the the true inner workings and true psychology for me is built as the process unfolds. Okay, excellent. At some point, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, you sing Losing My Religion. Uh, I am a <laughs> massive, massive REM fan. Uh, you did it justice. That's good. You'd be, you'd be glad to know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> how did that come about for you? How, how, how was Because I presume you just can't start improvising that. They need to clear that, right? Yes, we had to clear that. We had, there was another song that was written into the outline. I don't remember what that song was. And then we really wanted Kate Bush's Running Up the Hill. That Hill song because <laughs> yeah. that's one of my favorite songs. Kate Bush is my favorite artist and Drake's as well. And um, we couldn't get that song cleared. And so then it was literally about two weeks of Drake and I going through our phones and sending each other different songs back and forth. And we knew we wanted it to be sort of in the 80s, early, either like late 70s, 80s or early 90s. Um, and so we just, we, we sent songs to each other every single day, all day long. And then we'd sit there between takes and sing some songs or at lunch, we'd sing some songs and be like, no, no, no. And we kept going back to losing my religion, losing my religion. And finally it got cleared. So we got lucky. <laughs> and what was the experience like of, uh, of singing it? It was fun. I mean, all of the, you know, it's all of that, that whole experience was fun. He brought in this amazing band who actually performed together naturally. They happened to be friends with them. And uh, they improvised the song. Drake didn't know what the song was really going to sound like till they got there. He was just like, here's the song, put a, you know, a unique spin on it and show up. And so they did. And we like on the day, you know, figured out what the guitar riff was going to be. And um, everything was very fluid. It felt like a jam sesh that you have in your backyard on a Saturday night with some homies <laughs> or a Tuesday night. Okay. Are you the sort of person that the guitar comes out? Do you sing? Oh, yeah. Even if the guitar doesn't come out, I sing. I'm always singing. <laughs> what's, a, what's a karaoke song of choice? Because I imagine there isn't a lot of Kate Bush uh, at a karaoke bar. Oh, she would be my karaoke song of choice. Um, I don't know. It depends. It depends on your crowd. You know, sometimes like you want to go, you want to go journey. And then sometimes you want to go leather and lace. And then sometimes you want to <laughs> go Celine Dion. You know, it really depends on who the crowd is. As I said right back at the beginning, you have quit and come close to quitting acting on a number of occasions, you know, most famously when you were 24, just a few years ago now. Uh, you actually did quit uh, for a while and then you were lured back in just when you thought they were, you were out. <laughs> they pulled you back in. Um, movies like this, I imagine, make that decision worthwhile, right? Yeah, I mean, it was never about quitting forever. It was more about I had been acting since I was five and I was in my mid twenties and I was like, you know what? I've been doing this for a good solid two decades now. I should probably figure out who I am outside of this job as well. So that's what that chapter of my life was. And anytime you get to be creative in any scenario, it's worth it to me. And I, you know, I never like to say that acting is my career. I like to say it's my hobby, even still today, although it clearly is my career because we're so lucky to do what we do. And the art and the fun of it for me comes in the creation process. Mm -hmm. So doing movies like this really do remind me of how fucking fortunate we are to play. Because yeah. sometimes when you get a lot of cooks in the kitchen or when the studio world or specific productions can feel very mechanical, 
And so to have the opportunity to play without mechanics is it's gold. And yeah. it's something that you hold on to and something that you treasure. Yeah, indeed. Because obviously, you know, again, famously, you've had experiences on, on blockbusters, um, some of them not incredible experiences, it has to be said. So did that also inform your decision at that time? Things like you know, what happened with the, the Divergent series? and Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think there. You, I just got to the point where I realized that I was, I was in this washing machine of production. I wasn't in... I wasn't on a playground, you know, there wasn't, there was no opportunity to try the swings or go down the slide or play in the sandbox. <laughs> Everything was very much like a, a factory. And, um, and that just wasn't satisfying to me. Cause I also don't think that that does much for the audience. You know, it's not a proper, you're not giving the audience a proper, um, ability to understand storytelling with a lot of grace and a lot of, uh, creativity. Absolutely. Well, well, darn to it. And, and uh, the last thing is, um, if if you had decided not to come back a few years ago, or even if now you decided to move in another direction, what what would you do? What what's what are you what what what's the one career that you would like to turn your hand to, whether you're qualified Listen, or not? Go for it. I could do anything. I would love doing anything from becoming a quantum physicist to teaching Spanish in a foreign or English in a foreign country to opening up like a bed and breakfast in the middle of nowhere and just hosting people coming through. I have, I, I have a lot of different things that bring me a lot of joy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, whatever you do, do not do a podcast training because the, the marketplace is crowded. There's loads of them. <laughs> Man, it's true. They really, it really has changed in the last three months especially too <laughs> everyone's doing podcasts everyone's doing everyone's buying a microphone everyone's starting a podcast it's like no fuck off i got here first it's, it's, it's ridiculous <laughs> but, uh, but i'm glad uh, things are working out for you in in lockdown and uh and best luck with this one day next week or is it this week oh thank you so much yes it's this week it's thursday it's this thank week you. okay all right fantastic <laughs> awesome cheers thank you have a good one bye-bye you too thank you bye-bye okay so that was shailene woodley and we will be discussing endings comma beginnings later in the show first up though is our listener question section and this week's listener question comes from longtime podcast listener at cute face mcginty not her real name <laughs> i have to say or is it? Uh, at least or is it I, well it might be we name you cute face <laughs> Uh, what is the best background scene, she asks, that's happening while something ordinary is going on in the foreground? Then she gives two examples, but I'm not going to say them in case you guys already have them. There is a correct answer to this question, although it's also kind of cheating, and it is the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy's Volume 2. Right, next, move on. Okay, so that's a that good was example. The- that was the listener question. And if you want to have your question read out on the Emperor Podcast, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. Or no, should we have some more? Why is it a good example, James? Because it's one of the most magnificent things that's ever been on screen. I love it. Baby Groot, the song, dancing around, they're fighting the monster thing in the background. It's, it's godly. I love it. It, it is. It uh, is it true. Even, it even supersedes Argyle's uh, phone call while all the shit's going on behind him in Die Hard to me. What are the favorite ones? Where, like, I, li- I like the golden, way- the golden Eye one with the phone booth. That's a lot of fun. You remember that? Where Q's in the background, a guy in a phone booth, like an airbag inflates and slams him against the, oh, the glass. Yeah. And then you see the, the phone booth being sort of wheeled away on a trolley with him still flattened against the is glass. Is that Goldeneye? That's quite fun. Yeah, it is indeed. <laughs> really? Yeah. I thought it was a world that's yes. not enough. That's interesting. No, that's yeah. a Goldeneye one. Okay. 
surprised they were so jokey in Goldeneye with, you know, full of lols. What with full them, of lols. You know, kind of pressing the soft reset button and whatnot. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. The MCU has a couple of good ones. Uh, you could say Groot at the end of Guardians uh, with Drax. There's a great one in Guardians, though, the great one when they're on the in the prison and. Rocket's mm-hmm. outlining his plan for how to get out of the prison, yeah, and yeah, Groot yeah. just Groot, wanders uh, off. And yeah. you know, the one yeah, thing you absolutely one. have to do last yeah. is press that yeah. button. Yeah. <laughs> and Groot's extending. Yeah, yeah it's tremendous. Yeah. There's a good one in Endgame uh, with um, War Machine and Nebula and uh, Star Lord uh, doing his dance from Guardians, and to them, you know, to oh, so he's an idiot. Yeah, um, that's always quite fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a great one in Endgame. I don't know if you guys have spotted this. It's a, it's a little Easter egg. But if you look carefully, there's a point where it's towards the end of the film and Steve Rogers feels a bit defeated. And he's standing in the foreground, oh, right? God. And then Lord. behind him, it's very subtle. You have to really, really, really look hard to spot it. But behind him, a sort of orange circle starts spinning mm-hmm. out behind him. And then all the other superheroes come through a Group really? of portals. Wow, Chris. I mean, we should definitely talk about that, um, but but maybe not right now. Have, have we um, run any catchphrase of this podcast into the ground more than we we should no. talk about portals? Um, uh, Men in Black. Uh, you've got Will Smith delivering an alien baby in the back of a car in the uh, background. Yes. Um, and getting flung about by tentacles while um, Tommy Lee Jones has a, a serious chat to the father in the foreground. My That's favorite true. examples of this trope, though, are actually in TV because it's kind of a phenomenon Ooh. in TV shows that they will have an entire episode focused on a supporting player, some familiar, some we've never met before, mm. um, and give us a, a different view of the main cast by doing that. The absolute classic for me is the Zeppo in Buffy, which is an entire episode focused on Xander who gets in with some of the cool kids uh, in in school and then finds out that they're undead zombies. Um, And he goes to Buffy for help, but she hasn't got time because she's dealing with an incredibly stereotyped um, apocalypse and having all these mad romantic moments with Angel. so so Xander has to deal with it all himself. There's also a great example, I'm sorry, but it's true, in Supernatural <laughs> called Weekend of Bobbies. So Bobby is their kind of uh, man in the chair, to use Spider-Man terminology. He's the guy who makes the calls and pretends to be the FBI when somebody calls to check out their alibi and stuff like that. And, uh, and this is an entire episode focused on his life while they're off, you know, doing their heroic thing and being incredibly... Uh, unhelpful and unthere for his issues. Um, so yeah, those are just two examples. There have been ones in in Star Trek, I think two or three different kinds of Star Trek. There have been ones in Babylon 5. That's right. I said it. Um, it was a- Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Of no, it isn't. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. How like do you the not entire- respond to get out? What is wrong with you? Because I just, it, I, it offends me on a level that I can't even complete the quote, Chris, okay? <laughs> uh, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the entirety of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is basically yeah. exactly this. A good show, for the record. I, I, I still haven't got into it. It's not bad. I still haven't got it. I should, should. absolutely get into it. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, this is, uh, I think, not more than TV, this is a preserve of comedy and this kind of technique. And it is a preserve particularly of Sucker Abrahams and Sucker. Mm. And mm-hmm. if we should have an app, we should have a little, we should have a little sting for, for every week during the listener question where, you know, we, I press a little button and he goes, Chris, 
is about to talk about Top Secret. He's going to mention it again. Yes, it is. He's seen other films, but this is the one he talks about most. That's a good sting, actually. Someone put that to music. I'll use it every week. It's It's a great sting. It was really Uh, long. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I should probably extend it. Uh, we'll do a 12-inch remix. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in, in Top Secret. But my favourite uh, example of this is the utterly surreal moment where Fal Kilmer and Lucy Gutteridge go to a park and they're oh, on a yes. park bench. And in the background is a giant, <laughs> for some reason, is a giant statue of a pigeon. And then whilst there's some action happening in the foreground, you know, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to escape the attention of the Nazis by kissing. Whilst they're kissing, three men, sort of bird men, fly down onto the statue and just kind of stand there for a little bit. And then they fly away again, just unnoticed. And then the the scene ends with the giant statue of a pigeon taking a shit. That's... (laughs) That's no, that's comedy. That's comedy. I thought you were going to say the one from Airplane, where uh, the stewardess decides to have a nice sing along, but she knocks out the IV of the <laughs> of the dying girl, and so she's having this crazy fit and trying to put her IV needle back in in the background while everyone else has a cheery sing along. Yes, yes, no, that's a cracker. I was going to say we should also mention the one from the Amazing Spider Man, which is for me my favorite Stanley cameo of all time, uh, which is when he's in the library and. Uh, what's his name? The lizard tosses a table at him and Spider-Man catches it right mm-hmm. before it hits him. And he's got headphones on, so he's none the wiser and he just walks out the room. It's the high point of that film and it's my favourite Stanley cameo. It's great. That is cracking. That is absolutely cracking. Uh, there's also a... Um, there's a there's a moment in Airplane 2, the sequel. There's like a drug deal in the background that goes wrong and people start fighting each other. It's not technically a background thing, but I'm very fond of the flaming Ent in uh, <laughs> mm. in Two Towers. You know, the one where, because it's technically foreground, but it's a really wide shot, so it's easy to miss. He goes and dunks his head in the flood to kind of put out the flames. Yeah, That's he's always a cracker. <laughs> <laughs> that is a cracker. Uh, any others before we move on? There was the other one in the question, wasn't there? Yes, yeah, so Cuteface McGinty mentioned the Amazing Spider-Man uh, library one in the question, but she also mentioned the gas station in Super 8. Now, I don't know that movie at all well, so does anyone know what that means? It's another oblivious person with headphones on, basically. Is it? Yeah. Okay, all right, gotcha. Um, and there's loads of things like that, but there's, you know, I love when directors do this, and it happens all the time, where they just they stud the background with little bits of business. Airplane... Um, it's interesting I mentioned the Airplane too because that wasn't directed by Sucker Abraham Sucker but uh, Airplane Naked Gun Top Secret are just full of bits of business happening in the background which basically means you have to watch these things three, four times in order to catch every single thing Edgar Wright does it a little bit as well you know mm-hmm. uh, Joe Dante does it there's an amazing one in Gremlins I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this and by the way I'm not talking about things that happen in the background that aren't meant to happen in the background when I was doing some research for this I discovered the the moment of Mr. Nanny has anyone know this bit? Oh or- throwing the dog in the <laughs> yes, sea yes. yeah <laughs> or, which I, I I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but Hulk Hogan is riding along on a bike, and as he rides along on the on a bike past a body of water, uh, in the background you can see a guy throwing a dog into a into the lake. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and it's one of those things. I get the sense that it probably wasn't intentional, mm-hmm. but back in the day, you know, and they probably didn't even notice until they got back to the the cutting room, and mm-hmm. even then, even then, they probably didn't notice. Um, so it's not stuff like that. But it is things like Gremlins when Hoyt Axton is at the Inventor convention. You see, at one point, there is a, uh, in the background, one of the inventions at this convention is the time machine. And someone gets on 
the time machine and starts pedaling and then it cuts away and when it cuts back, the time machine is gone. (laughs) (laughs) Shit like that. That's what I'm talking about, shit like that. I'm just thinking, isn't there, um, and I'm just, the gas station reminded me, in uh, uh, Gross Point Blank, isn't there another uh, oblivious person in a gas station wearing headphones? There is. Yeah, he's listening to Live and Let Die. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) There is. God, that was a good movie. Whilst um, whilst he's having his gunfight with, is it Grocer? Does Grocer turn up? Isn't it the, the creepy guy, isn't it, at yeah, that point? the creepy yeah. guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great scene. Oh, I love that film. I love that film. Um, but there's one, I, I can't place this, so maybe the listeners can help or maybe you guys can help me. There is one, and I can't figure out which movie it's from, and uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I, in my head, I can picture like a bad guy, like a crime boss, like a boss of a crime gang. And he's like on the phone to someone saying, you'll never, you'll never touch me. I'm untouchable, blah, 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 blah. I'm unreachable. You can't possibly get in. And meanwhile, the hero, I think it's a superhero or like a really, really cool badass guy has got in behind him. And in the background, you can see this guy like taking out all this dude's minions. And then he turns around and it's like, oh, Oh, all my people have been have been taken out. And that does ring a bell. Shit, I think it's like it, it's like a Deadpool, maybe, maybe a Deadpool, or maybe that montage at the beginning of Deadpool Two. Is that what you, is possibly that, that it might be that? But I can't, I can't quite, I can't quite place it. So if anyone knows what I'm talking about, <laughs> please do write I mean, in that, that and tell me. Know, really, it'd be, yes. it'd be great. Please do. There are. a bunch of these in Cabin in the Woods, if you remember, when it's all going, mm-hmm. yes. when everything, the facilities going bizarre, just if you look at the monitors, there's something happening on all of them. And my favourite one is this one where Ronald the intern <laughs> is standing, while he holds up a sign, it just says, help me, a dragon bat has my scent. <laughs> <laughs> I love that This film. is no laughing matter. Dragon bats are no. not good. No, no. Dragon bats yeah. are very, very serious. If a dragon bat do, does have your scent, then uh, don't hold up a sign, just call 999 immediately. <laughs> uh, other emergency service numbers are available. There's so again, there's so many, but uh, that's the that's the ones I could think of. Or, um, that's the ones that really, really stuck out to me. But yeah, the pigeon and top secret, incredible. Chris is talking about Top Secret. He mentions it every week. He's seen other films, but this is the one he mentions most. Okay. <laughs> All right. And on that note, that is it for our listener question section. Uh, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast. Uh, um, as cute face McGinty did to her satisfaction, of course. Uh, then you can get in touch with us basically via Twitter these days. So uh, she just tweeted me. Or you can slide into my DMs at Chris Hewitt. Or you can wait. Uh, most Thursdays I will ask in a panic. But I didn't this week because at cute face McGinty tweeted me earlier in the week. There you go. The early bird catches the listener question worm. All right, so now we're going to segue smoothly from the listener question into this week's movie news. And thankfully, there is a ton of news to talk about, including the fact that it seems that Captain Marvel 2 has a director. Mm. And that director, I don't know why I'm saying director like that, that director <laughs> is Nia DaCosta. Yeah, this seems promising. Not that we've seen Candyman yet, but um, this seems but like a really good great. show. Yeah. The, the the trailers for Candyman and that, and that 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 still that stop motion thing that Neil DeCosta put on Twitter a month or two ago was amazing. I'm very excited to see that film. But yeah, um, this is fantastic news. Only the third black woman to direct uh, a comic book movie after 
Ava DuVernay, uh, who's directed New Gods, and obviously Gina Pitts Biden, who just directed The Old Guard. I think the first sort of black woman in the MCU um, mm-hmm. to direct the movie, which is, you know, again, you know, I've said it before, I've got mixed feelings on these sorts of things because it's 2020. We should not still be having first like these. Um, but, you know, there's still, still, you know, it's a long time coming. And I'm, I'm happy that we're finally sort of getting to the stage where we're banging out these first in a sense. Um, and Nia Costa, uh, I'm say I'm very, very excited for Candyman. I'm really intrigued to see what she's going to do with this. Um, I hope that she puts her own flavor on it, whatever it mm-hmm. may be. Um, because with Captain Marvel, I, I don't uh, think that film was bad per se, but in terms of the director's own imprint, that's not the MCU movie that really comes to mind. So mm. uh, whatever yeah. form it takes, I just hope that Nila Kelster gets the opportunity and to sort of say to put her stamp on it and have that be the cut of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think the, the first um, Captain Marvel, you know, I think it gets to a good place, but it takes its time kind of getting there. And and I think there's a lot of room now that you, she's kind of established, now that we know people like her, to have a bit more fun, have a bit more personality, as you say, have a bit more just of a voice really in in the film uh, next time. So, so yeah, I'm excited. This is really mm. good news, I think. I love that character. I think she's great. And I, I, I really love Captain Marvel, the movie, despite its, its sort of flaws and it has some pacing issues. But I, yeah, I think it's lots of fun. I think she's great. And I like the fact that she's, you know, like massively overpowered. And I always think those make for quite fun films. But um, yeah, I'm very interested to see what she does with this. I think it's going to be interesting in that, uh, and I mentioned this way back on, uh, it might have been the Endgame spoiler pod, but I think uh, Captain Marvel 2 is going to sort of focus on or one of the big things in it is going to be the creation of sword which is like shield but for space space, related. space but, shield yeah exactly <laughs> um and you know now that we know nick fury is sort of in space you know trying to i think that's what he's doing at the end of spider-man as uh, sort of you know forming that sort of new faction of sure. and i think uh captain marvel being you know the space traveler that she is i think she's gonna have something to say about that that's a cool idea yeah, I hope it's cosmic, the the, the next instalment, hmm. because I think her her powers and abilities lend themselves to that. Honestly, after the year and then summer we've had, I would watch two hours of Captain Marvel playing Scrabble. Just anything. <laughs> just give me a fucking film. I mean, it's been far too <laughs> long since our really last Marvel has. fix. It really Ugh. has. It's just destroying me at this point. We can, and we will only talk about portals for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, I mean, that does kind of bring us to the question of how we will see our next Marvel fix, which was very much put into doubt this week with the news that Mulan will premiere on Disney Plus and that in addition to having Disney Plus already, you will have to pay, well, certainly in the States, they're talking about $30 um, as well. So that would be in September. Uh, So that is, I mean, this is something I said they wouldn't do because I thought there was too much money at stake, but I Mm. guess... You know, they've obviously looked at the outlook for COVID-19 and come to some pretty dark conclusions and figure that this is the best way to uh, to approach the release of even big films like Mulan. So it's going to be premiering on, this is for the, the US and Canada. I imagine we're in the same boat here in the UK or best case scenario, I imagine would be a simultaneous uh, cinema and mm. Disney Plus plus money release. Um, 
but it's they were a looking... bit woolly, weren't they? On on yeah. they said it's definitely US and Canada. It's going to debut on Disney Plus. They said it'll be in uh, countries in Western Europe that have Disney Plus. It will debut on Disney Plus, and then territories that don't have Disney Plus will get theatrical releases. Presumably, that China mm. being a big part of that. Mm. But whether it means that for countries like the UK, where cinemas are opening, we will also get a theatrical release, they haven't said. And if we don't, that feels like madness to me. Yeah. But uh, this this is really worrying because this is kind of comes on the on the the heels of the universal thing with trolls, doesn't it? Where they had sort success with trolls doing it that way, and then got into a big brouhaha with AMC, which did get solved, which we talked about on the podcast the other week. What does this mean for them? So that's thirty dollars is quite a lot. I think we can all agree on that. And a lot of people, I think Variety did a poll. They polled nearly a thousand people, and the vast majority of people said they wouldn't be prepared to pay that for it. But it is um, a family release, like that one. So that yes, does exactly put the economics that. in a slightly different perspective. Yeah. So say mm. let's say there's four of you, two parents, two kids, maybe watching it. Then actually, then it starts to make sense. Although you know, for a family going to cinema is a day out. There's popcorn. Like it's not just watching the film. So I guess mm. it's kind of hard to compare. But then from a studio point of view, like that's thirty dollars. So they've presumably crunched the numbers quite heavily on this. Now I'm assuming that's pure profit for them. Like they, I don't know that they have a deal like Universal talks about, whereby exhibitors will get a cut of it so it's probably all for disney so actually if even 10 percent of their current subscriber base which is pretty fucking high at the moment it's like 60 million or something yeah yeah yeah, got that then that's a shitload of box office revenue so the worry for this is you know disney have said this is a one-off this is not what we're looking at going forward this is a one-off thing but realistically if this does prove a huge success they will absolutely do this again and my worry is that black widow will end up on disney plus in september i I don't think that's going to happen i think i think that i think that feige is not going to want that to happen and i think he's powerful enough to stop it from happening Uh, i may be completely wrong on this but i i I, I think it's I think it's a real shame. This is a real shame. I think this this could be a nail in the coffin for for theatrical movies. You know, I, it's a real shame for for Nikki Carroll, the director. It's a real mm. shame for all the all the cast and crew. You know, you make a movie like this, you make it to be seen in the biggest screen possible, um, not a iPad or fifty five inch TV. It's just it's not just about that as well. I mean, obviously we're very very excited to see it, but. Think of the target market for this. For for many people, this is like Black Panther going straight yeah. to, to Disney Plus. And I 100%. get that obviously there's extenuating circumstances, but even today, if that were to happen, believe me when I tell you Black Twitter would be incensed. Um and I would be sort of part of that, you know, group because it would just be a massive shame and it's annoying because I was, you know, just looking forward to the conversations that were going to be started by this film, this film, which is a majority Asian cast, the, and not, not that sort of we still need examples of, you know, international films can sell and all that, all the rest mm-hmm. of it. But this would sort of be, you know, from everything I, I've heard, I know people who've seen it, who said that they loved it and it's great, um, a real game changer in many respects. And now... I'm not saying Mulan still won't dominate the conversation, but that conversation is going to be more about how it's being released, not the quality of the film itself. And that is just a real bummer for me. This is more of a bummer than a win for me. And I get, I get, I get the reasons why they're doing it, but it's still yeah. really frustrating that it's coming out this way. The, the problem is Donald Trump and his absolute, um, you know, incapacitation of the U.S. Uh, as a whole. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, though, I think you're right, absolutely about um, about the film. I also wonder how you know 
how much this is really going to help the studios. I understand that they must be freaking out that they've got all this money, um, you know, just stuck because they can't release these incredibly big budget films. I understand that there are economic problems, but like we didn't hear numbers from Universal after the first couple of weeks of Trolls. We don't know if those numbers kept rolling on or if they kind of just stopped, uh, mm -hmm. if it was a novelty thing or if that has been a sort of, you know, genuinely big successful release that more than covered its costs and, and made loads of, made the same kind of money it would have done in cinemas. And I wonder how much they are going to really long term get out of this kind of release method and if it will really cover its costs in the way that they hope. Because I I don't know that it necessarily will. I don't know that you get the same oomph. Now, in Mulan's case, it's a little different because they had obviously spent a lot of their marketing money already. You know, a lot of that had already mm. been done back in March. And so they're probably more in the hole on that, if you will, than they would be on A Black Widow, than they would be on Wonder Woman 1984 or any of the other postponed films. Um, but it does feel like this is at the at best sort of, you know, plugging a gap in the dam and not actually dealing with the fundamental issue. A couple of other little quick things to talk about. Um, so Ryan Reynolds has signed on to a movie that may be directed by Paul King. Uh, Paul King has, uh, Ryan Reynolds has like 25 movies on his to-do list and Paul King similarly so, but it's called Everyday Parenting Tips and it's going to be based on Simon Rich's New Yorker short story. We'll be talking about Simon Rich later in the show. He yeah. wrote An American Pickle, very, very funny writer uh, and he's breaking into films in a big way. And uh, so this is every Everyday parenting tips, and it's going to star Reynolds as a man who is trying to raise his child in the middle of a creature pandemic that has, you know, unleashed giant monsters upon the city in which he lives. Um, sounds high concept. Sounds like it could be fun. Sounds like it might have some heart. I'm here for it. The idea of the, you know having the talk about monsters under the bed when there might actually be monsters under the bed is quite a fun one. I think that's always a good idea. I also like the the news this week that Tom Hanks is in talks to play Geppetto in Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which could be a lot of fun. I hope um, it's a reteam with Robert Zemeckis, but will hopefully be slightly less dead eyed than uh, say Polar <laughs> Express. <laughs> True, uh, or Castaway. His his eyes were just completely dead in that. <laughs> he was great just not realistic whatsoever. Uh, and yes, and that uh, at one point was going to be directed as well by Paul King, who I'm pretty sure has been attached to every movie <laughs> of the last <laughs> 10, 15 years or so. But uh, mm. yeah, ex exciting stuff. There's also talk of a movie musical modern day version of Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, which is one of my all-time favourite movies, the 1991 version with um, Gerard Depardieu, who, you know, problematic, but the movie's great. <laughs> um, and they're talking about, so Joe Wright directing, um, and the cast they're talking about is Peter Dinklage, Hayley Bennett, Brian Tyree Henry, and Ben Mendelsohn. That's pretty great. I think that means Dinklage would be Cyrano, which is great casting. I think it means Hayley Bennett, obviously, for Roxanne, which presumably by a process of elimination might mean that but Brian Tyree Henry um, is Christian, which is, I think, also kind of great. So, um, so yeah, I'm hoping this all comes together and works out. But uh, yeah, super here for it. Because Dinklage played him in, uh, in Broadway, didn't he? Did he? Oh, yeah. I would love to see that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, the first image of uh, John Boyega and Steve McQueen's Small Axe has been released, um, which is an interesting project. We were talking um, uh, a while back when the George Floyd murders happened about uh, the interpretation of cops in media and how 
uh, that might be sort of changed or amended given what's happening in the world. And I think this will be one of the first litmus tests for that. Um, and Steve McQueen, John Boyega, two people who I'm very fond of, who I like their work. So it'd be interesting to see this one. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Five parts and, and whatnot. So uh, yeah. excited so, to see how that. End of yeah. September in the New September. York Film Festival. That's it. Yeah. Very, very excited about that. Uh, Jason Bateman is in talks to direct Simon Kinberg's Here Comes a Flood, which is a heist film slash character-driven love story, apparently. Uh, so that's exciting. Uh, Bateman has made a couple of decent films as director, and obviously he's directed and won Emmys for directing episodes of um, Ozark. So, okay. yeah, I keep hearing the show is very, very good. And I'm like, I want to watch it, but I need to sort of find time to watch it. Because by, by all accounts, the first episode is so good that you want to watch the second and the third immediately. And if I do that, then nothing else will get done. So I need to just make sure that I got the time before I dive in. But I've heard really good things. The other thing that caught my eye this week um, was the Ratchet trailer. So this is Sarah Paulson as Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, Her name was Sarah Paulson. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a great looking trailer. It looks stunning. The colours are amazing. I, you know my long-standing issues, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. With rehabilitation of Died in the Wool villains and with prequels. So I have some issues with this, but I'm going to try and get past them and enjoy it because Corey Stoll and people are in it and, Mm. you know, it looks good. I like Corey Stoll. It's yeah. great, but you know, I mean, I, I will be surprised if this is rehabilitation. I no, I, I'm not saying it's a rehabilitation, but it's it's you know when you get into kind of backstories of how people became what they became, sometimes you get a bit unnecessarily sympathetic, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm worried about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I, Ryan Murphy has, he can he can lean into some twisted areas, and I've got he a can. sneaking suspicion that this is going to be. Nurse Ratched, but yeah, being really, really reprehensible and, and evil. But yeah, there's no, we don't need this. We don't need it. We just there's don't. There's no need for it, no. Uh, there were two very, very bits of sad news uh, to talk about this week as well. We lost two greats from the world of film. We lost Wilfred Brimley, who I was surprised to learn was 85, because I was pretty sure that Wilfred Brimley has always been 85, uh, because he's just always looked like Wilfred Brimley right from the off. Mm-hmm. feels like he came ready-made in a can and yeah. just opened it out and Wilfred Brimley appeared. Um, but he was just a, a tremendous actor. Uh, I will know him best as Blair in The Thing, where he didn't have his trademark moustache, of course. But, uh, you know, he's just tremendous. Watch Clark. Watch him close. And just tremendous in The Thing and other movies like Cocoon and Hard Target. And, of course, he was married for many, many years to Jessica Tandy and uh, was a presence on Twitter. Uh, A really fun... Slightly mm. cantankerous presence on Twitter <laughs> as well. Uh, so very, very sad about him. Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, he was just. Yeah, he was one of the great character actors. And every time you, you, he turned up in anything, you were like, "Oh, good, it's him. I like him." <laughs> um, his name had become synonymous in in my head anyway in, in the last couple of years with the Wilford Brimley line. Are you aware of this? The Wilford Brimley line. There's a, a Twitter account for it, and it basically it. It measures, so it, they figured out exactly how old he was to the day when Cocoon premiered. So at that point, he was already playing just a old man uh, and, mm. uh, and of course, continued to play an old man for the next 30 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically started 
measuring other celebrities by that milestone. How, you know, what do they look like when they pass the Wilfred Brimley line? Because he had this amazing ability to look like an old man even when he wasn't. Yeah. And you know, Paul, Paul Rudd is past the Wilfred Brimley line. Obviously, all those guys. Brad Pitt's past it. Um, Sandra Bullock's past it. All of these people. It's f- genuinely a fascinating Twitter account. I don't know if they'll continue it now. Obviously, after his death, but. Um, but yeah, I, I I think he was amused by it, which also amused me. So uh, yeah. some more power to him. Uh, and also this week we lost the great British film director, Sir Alan Parker, who passed away at 76 and is just a great, great loss. I mean, <laughs> one of the best directors of modern movie musicals, mm-hmm. right off the bat, straight away. So fame, Bugsy Malone, <laughs> Bugsy Malone. I mean, wow. And Afita, of course. But, you know, he was also someone who, he was a wonderful visual stylist. Um, he had a background in commercials, just like Ridley Scott. And his films always looked great. And he, he was really, really great at exploring darkness mm-hmm. on screen. So two of my favorite movies of his are Angel Heart and Mississippi yep. Burning. But also... The commitments. So he had the a great facility for, for characters. I'm not saying because people are going, the commitments is dark, Chris. No, it's not. It's not. Oh. But he had a great facility for character as well. And the commitments is so funny and so real and so human. And again, it's practically a musical. The music in that is phenomenal. Yeah, it's the commitments for me. That was a very formative film uh, for me growing up. I just think it's it's one of the greatest. And I've probably listened to that soundtrack more than most movie soundtracks at the very least. Um but also, I mean, he, he directed Fame as well. So he he find these ways to make movie musicals that weren't, you know, that weren't the kind of classic studio mold of, of musicals that weren't pretty and, you know, la da much as I love that, and, you know, pretty colourful dresses and la-la land kind of style. Like he found ways to kind of bring that up to date, to make it different, to make it feel completely different and often not to feel like a musical at all. It just felt like there happened to be some people singing and isn't that nice in stuff like Fame and <laughs> Commitments in particular. Um, but Bugsy Malone as well, you know, what what a movie. And just the, the whole concept behind it, the whole idea of it, the way he got those performances out of those kids, it's Unbelievable. What a guy. We haven't even mentioned Midnight Express is another mm-hmm. classic as well. But uh but Angel Heart, I had the I never interviewed him, but I had the the good fortune a, a few years ago, Jeff Goldsmith, who has a wonderful uh, magazine called Backstory for for screenwriters and also a great uh, podcast called the QA with Jeff Goldsmith. Check it out. In fact, check out this episode. He came to London and uh on holiday, but <laughs> he decided to work while he was here and he set up a screening of Angel Heart at the Prince Charles. Uh, which is coming back in October, I believe. The Prince Charles in London, great, great cinema. And um, and he got Alan Parker along to talk for about an hour. And Nick and I went along. We had front row seats and just this wonderful, wonderful insight into Alan Parker's process. And he was an incredibly intelligent, dynamic man who did a lot as well for the British film industry. He worked very closely with the BFI for, for many, many, many years as well. And, uh, you know, once I remember this, whenever I was an Empire reader way back in the early days of Empire, he once kind of took Empire to task. He kind of went to war with Empire in that he sent, he didn't think that Empire 
at the time, particularly, was doing enough to support British film as a British film magazine. And so he sent a fax, an angry fax denouncing Empire, which they printed in full in the very next issue. So I think certainly for the first few years, we, he and Empire had an uneasy relationship. But uh, that was mended over time. And I, I know that he spoke to Ian Freer for Lee Commitments uh, about mm-hmm. two years ago or so when it came out on Blu-ray. And he was just a, a wonderful, wonderful interviewee and a great, great film director. And I would say... Uh, I know uh, I'm on your your big fan of this, which is Angel Heart. So I think maybe that or the commitments are the the films I would go to this weekend if I was you know one to revisit yeah. Alan Parker or Bugsy Malone or Bugsy Malone or Bugsy yeah Malone or Bugsy not Malone. just Bugsy yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes indeed Sir Alan Parker who died this week at the age of seventy six but in slightly happier news. The new issue of Empires on Sale. Hooray! In its new Empire Day. As we record this, it'll be new Empire Day plus one by the time you listen to it, unless of course you listen to it on Saturday, in which case new Empire Day plus two, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's a very, very exciting issue. It is another high concept issue um, in lockdown. And uh, it is the ultimate movie playlist is our cover feature this month. So basically we had the idea to ask tons of our filmmaker friends, actor friends, director friends, writer friends, producer friends, uh, to draw up lists of movies. So I think there's something like 235 separate movies that are listed in this movie playlist, some of which you may have seen, some of which you probably haven't. Uh, So go and check those out if you can. But we have, for example, Chris McQuarrie and Simon Kimberg both listing their favourite heist movies. We have Shane Black listing his favourite film noirs, which is a pretty essential list. What else is on there, guys? We have um, Sandy Powell talking about her favourite movie costumes, which I thought was really fascinating. Obviously, the multiple Oscar-winning costume designer. Mm-hmm. Haunted House Movies from Mike Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, films That Make Me Cry from Nicole Holofcener. Mm-hmm. Delroy uh, Lindo and the films that moved him. Yeah. Ethan Hawke and his favourite Paul Newman films. Uh, and we have a whole bunch of interviews in there, extended interviews. So Paul Fig and Henry Golding interviewed each other about their favourite British movies. Uh, I was lucky enough to be part of an audience uh, of Gareth Evans and Edgar Wright, who are massive, massive Jackie Chan fans, talking about their favourite Jackie Chan movies. And that was a bit of an education. And uh, we have Joe Dante and John Landis, directors of the two greatest werewolf movies of all time, an American werewolf in London and the Howling, talking about their favourite werewolf movies. It's pretty essential stuff, but it's not the only thing that's in the issue. Uh, so we have a feature looking ahead to The King's Man, which is Matthew Fawn's World War One set prequel to the first two Kingsman movies, and it's a very different movie. Uh, we also have the big Empire interview is with Riz Ahmed who is fantastic, of course, and uh, that's really, really fascinating uh, interview. Uh, we have the first look at Ben Wheatley's Rebecca, and we have the first look at Tom Holland in The Devil All the Time. Uh, we have chats with the likes of Elizabeth Moss. We look at Lovecraft Country. Uh, we talk to Oliver Stone. The ranking this month is Ennio Morricone, which is a tribute to the great man. And we review all the films you could possibly want to see. This is a cracking issue, a cracking issue, and it's available right now in all good, evil, and virtual news agents. Highly recommended. 
And that is it for our movie news section. It's time now for our last guest this week, and it is the owner of the best laugh in movies, Seth Rogen. Um, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's a producer. He only wears two of those hats in this week's An American Pickle, but he wears two hats anyway because he plays two roles. Uh, so this is about... Uh, he plays Herschel Greenbaum, who is a Jewish immigrant to uh, America at the beginning of the 20th century, who <laughs> falls into a fat of brine and somehow is preserved magically for 100 years. When he wakes up, he finds himself in a very, very different world. And his only living relative is Ben Greenbaum, also played by Seth Rogen. Uh, and they have very, very different ways of approaching life is probably the best way to describe that. Uh, so I spoke to Seth Rogen via Zoom, uh, the dread Zoom, Zoom, no Zoom, this week. And uh, we had a lot of fun. Well, I did. <laughs> Hope you guys <laughs> do too. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast in lockdown, of course, by Seth Rogen, star of An American Pickle. How are you, sir? I'm okay. How are you? Oh, you know, all things considered. I'm not too bad. All things considered. Yeah, 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 precisely. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm honestly, I'm very, very happy. I know that obviously an American Pickle uh, cinemas aren't quite ready for the comeback over there in the States. So it's going to be on HBO yes. Max as of this weekend, but it's going to be an actual cinemas over here in the UK. And I'm... God bless oh, you guys. I'm so delighted. Congratulations <laughs> on not completely mishandling this pandemic. Uh, I don't know. Give us time. Give us time. I yeah, have a exactly. feeling... <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to fuck it up big time. Um, but but yeah, I'm, so, I'm going to be so overjoyed to be back in a cinema. It's going to be it's going to be amazing. I'm going to be facing the screen. I'm going to have a mask. It's it's going to be incredible, but uh, <laughs> what, what about yourself, sir? What, what, you know, what, what was the last film you saw in a cinema? Do you miss it? I do. What was the last movie I saw in a cinema? I honestly can't uh, remember at this moment. What? <laughs> What were some of the what were some of the last ones that came out before all this happened? Well, I don't even know anymore. I can tell you. I can tell you exactly the last one I saw. This may jog yeah. your memory. Uh, the last film I saw in the cinema was Finn Diesel in Bloodshot. Oh yeah, I saw that at home. I that that I that I saw. I streamed Bloodshot. So there you go. <laughs> but the actual cinema, not so much. Not so much. Yeah, that okay. would not have been worth getting COVID for. I can Admittedly, I did pay to see it to go and review it for the podcast, okay. so it was yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. busman's that holiday kind of thing. <laughs> have, you, yeah. have you listened to the How Did This Get Made about Bloodshot? It's I haven't yet. I haven't. Is I it? Uh, is it? Okay, excellent. I will. I will check it out. I might check it out during this actually. So if you yeah, can just exactly. if, you, if you can just talk for fifteen minutes, so you know the stuff I'm going to ask you. I do. I'll just say all the stuff. <laughs> you just go into like autopilot. It's totally fine. Um, well, congratulations on American Pickle. I thought it was absolutely fantastic and uh, you know really charming and sweet. And Thank you. Uh, it could so easily have been, and this may be a compliment, I don't know, but it could so easily have been Encino Man for a new generation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, One day. We'll still do that. <laughs> this just wasn't the one. <laughs> and it absolutely totally isn't that. It's it's obviously very f funny, but it's, this is a, a comedy that has things on its mind as well. <laughs> it's funny that someone else ref said that, and I literally had to go back and, and I looked up how Encino Man was received in its time and was shocked to find that it was universally panned <laughs> by <laughs> critics and audiences alike because I loved that movie yeah. and it took me I, I was like people keep talking about it and like it's bad what gives <laughs> and then I went back I was like oh no it, may, it maybe was um, but 
Encino Man aside, um, yeah, uh, weirdly, we thought that a man getting pickled for 100 years was a good <laughs> vehicle to do some deep exploration on uh, legacy and our own family's history and, yeah. um, you know, our ancestors and um, what we're taught, what we reject, all that stuff. I mean, it weirdly became kind of the perfect uh, vessel to explore a lot of things that were very personal to to us as the people who are making the movie. Yeah, absolutely. It made me think a, a lot about legacy and ancestors and what my ancestors would think of me. First of all, I'd have to explain a podcast to them and what that is. They would not be impressed, let me tell you. <laughs> Nobody now is impressed, in fairness. Exactly. <laughs> so, so going back 100 years, I don't know what that would do. But uh, how, many, how many people have podcasts? That would be the first thing they ask. And that, that'd, be, that'd be hard to answer. <laughs> well, it's a pandemic, so everybody pretty exactly. much. 200 million, I think. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to be 200 million and one uh, exactly. great, great grandfather? Uh, but yeah, it, it kind of makes you think about, you know, going back, I don't know, for example, what a hundred years ago, what my grandfather, who was still alive back then, what he was doing back then. You know, did it make you think? Did it make you kind of go back and look into your history and re-examine that yeah, side of yourself? I, 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 knew, I knew quite a bit of it. Um, yeah. And, and it actually very closely resembles the, the history, the, the story in the film. My grandmother... Uh, is from Poland and was uh, born fleeing the pogroms um, who were people trying to kill Jewish people. Um, and um, she came to uh, Canada and my grandfather um, was the descendants of people with a similar story. And he came to Winnipeg um, and my father's side were <laughs> descendants of people who had a similar story and <laughs> they went to New York and New Jersey Um and so, yeah, actually, like recreating the kind of old country and the shtetls where the Jewish people lived and 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 kind of dramatizing the attacks on them, even comedically a little bit. But yeah. um, it, it very much, you know, um, yeah, I mean, that was my family's history, you know. So this is really personal film to you in, in, a, in a way. Yeah, in a way it is, which and it's a weird movie to have be a personal. Honestly, but we 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 really try to make every movie personal to us. Mm. Like at this point, we spend so much time working on these films that like there has to be something about them that is wildly personally interesting and um, you know, relatable and and something that like drives us to keep spending time and energy you know, trying to make them great because yeah, if it was just like some silly thing, then we wouldn't work as hard on them as we should probably. <laughs> That's a very, very good point. And I just wanted to dig down as well, Seth, into the the you know, the idea that you're playing dual roles here, which is, you know, you know, two very distinct performances. Did you not get the memo, the Jean Claude Van Damme memo about the playing impact? Yeah, just slick your hair back, man. That's all you need to do. Just do it too. Yeah, you just do it the same guy twice. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Double Impact, I will say. Who I doesn't? I, I, nothing, I will not derive Double Impact in any double way. Double Impact <laughs> and Encino Man are both better movies yes, than Bloodshot. Both, both good movies. Yes, that, that I would I would take that. That I would, is a hill I would die on. Um, but um, yeah, honestly, it's one of the reasons I, I did not make the decision to play both characters lightly and it, it um it took me years to wrap my head around it honestly because 
because of the long, terrible tradition of people playing two characters in films. And not to say there's not some amazing versions of it, and those are some of the things that probably made me think hopefully it would be okay, but Mm. I think it's probably gone south more than it's gone North. <laughs> yeah, things go north, I guess. <laughs> and they're good. No one says that. They? They're going south. Well, yeah, they're going south. They should be able to go north. <laughs> it went really well. How did it go? How did you mean it go? It went really well. It went, it went north. north. <laughs> Didn't go south. <laughs> Went northwest for a bit. Just kind of stayed put. You know, it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> as long as you don't go south. <laughs> I mean, but, but obviously, for example, on, on this with the dual role saying putting your mind at ease a, a little bit, I guess, must have been, you know, Brandon Trost being in the director's chair. And you, you've worked with him. He's he shot you in a good way more times than yeah. than enough. Yeah, I've known him for years, and he's been a very close collaborator of ours for years and years and years as our cinematographer. And, and, mm. um, and I think when I actually first started directing with him and him shooting the films, I didn't, I wasn't even appreciating how much he was doing to help us, you know, look, look like good. better directors than we probably were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I looked back and was like, oh, yeah, I, I didn't get what was happening there. Um, but um, yeah, it, it was great. And it, and it was scary, though. And um, I also do a lot of self modulation, I watch a lot of playback and. Um, oh really? And, okay. Yeah, uh, and and yeah, it, it takes a team effort at times to do something this complicated because it's like you're keeping track of the framing and the logistics and the performance and the timing and the eye lines and all this stuff yeah. and like it. it uh, you know, the more eyeballs you can have on it, the the better. Sometimes, how does it work though in terms of your performances in this? Yeah. Because obviously, you're you know you're a guy who you you write your own stuff, uh, but you're also well known for for improv, and it must be really really difficult to bounce off yourself, given that you know your previous you know, you shot the other side three hours earlier. Well, not even. I don't wear a fake beard at all in the film. So we shot the entire movie as one character and then went back and shot the entire movie as the oh other my character. God. So sometimes we were shooting the other half of the scene six weeks later. Um, Why uh, did you do that? That's making it more difficult. Because I think fake beards look bad, honestly. <laughs> and I uh, that's it. That's the only reason. And I and I think when you watch the movie, the fact that subconsciously, no, nothing in your head is telling you that I'm doing something to make myself look weird, uh-huh. I think helps sell yeah. the because I think the audience and, and also like I've I'm like a famous I I have a beard a lot, you know, like and so like people know what a beard on me looks like. So it it, it put even more pressure on I just didn't want like you have to suspend quite a bit of disbelief <laughs> to watch this film. So I think, you know, I was adamant that like anything we could do to visually not make you suspend any more disbelief and the fact yes. that it was two characters and to just make you not think about it. Uh-huh. Um so yeah, it was really complicated and um incredibly logistically challenging <laughs> um and it was kind of annoying because the better job we did the less it would seem like we were doing it was one of those things where like the harder we worked the easier it all seemed <laughs> yeah so then idiots like me come in and go what was it like so you shot one side and then you put a fake beard on and then shot the other yeah, exactly. side yeah. Yeah. Um, no it was uh yeah with improvising 
Um, I mean, I guess imagine doing this interview and imagining what I would say and then only doing your half and then in your head, <laughs> picturing my answer and leaving pauses for it and then coming back to the other side and listening to yourself and then filling in the pauses that you had left for yourself, basically. Um, <laughs> that, that, was, that was how it was. Um, so I would improvise and I would leave pauses for I would kind of say the other thing in my head and then not, you know, but not say it, obviously. And then I would sometimes weeks later come back and hear myself in an ear thing. Uh-huh. And I would fill in the other half of uh, the conversation. You make it sound difficult. It's obviously didn't. It, it's not difficult, clearly. Uh, but- it's, insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's insane. Couple that with uh, physical cues that were cued by beeps, sets of three beeps. So like... You know, and sometimes throughout a scene, there'd be four of those. So there'd be like a dozen beeps that would cue different things. So I'd be talking and then I'd hear beep, beep, beep. And that meant I had to like look over there because he went over there and then beep, beep, beep. And that means I have to like hand him the glass because he took the glass at that point and beep. And meanwhile, I'm listening to myself in my ear and performing the scene. Um, Yeah, it was really hard. I can imagine. uh, Ultimately... Uh, a challenge I was up for, and 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 a fun challenge, honestly. Um, uh, last week, there was some very very exciting news uh, was announced uh, that you and uh, Evan are writing a a script about Scotty Bowers for Luca yeah. Guadagnino, of all people. Yes, that's um, that's exciting. Yeah. How did that come about? It is exciting. Um, it came about. I had actually, uh, I actually knew uh, the person who directed the documentary about mm-hmm. Scotty, coincidentally, uh, through other friends a little bit. Um, but uh, we got a call one day that Luca Guadagnino was a big fan of ours, uh, specifically of Sausage Party, and that he thought we would be the perfect guys to write his <laughs> film about Scotty Bowers that he wanted to make. Um, and we got on the phone with him and we met him in person. He came to L.A. and we talked a lot for hours and we really um, got along and uh, we understood the vision of for the film that he wanted to make very well. And um we uh yeah we decided that we should all collaborate together and it's very exciting <laughs> that is amazing the the idea the image of luca guadagnino watching scott sausage party is gonna stay with me forever <laughs> i have yeah i was once at a dinner where edward norton explained to inarutu over the course of like an hour and a half the plot of sausage party and it was truly one of the most wonderful things i've ever witnessed <laughs> and then and then so you can stick with me here yeah. and there's a, the most bacchanalian orgy you've ever seen yeah, on the big exactly. <laughs> It was, it was pretty funny. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so Scotty Bowers is, is you know, because he's his story is incredible. So that must be something that's yeah. Just... He was like a sexual fixer for um, people in Hollywood in uh, the post World War II, basically um, mm. at a time when being gay or a lesbian was uh, completely shunned. Um, he arranged for sexual liaisons um, with. For 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 people, uh, yeah, who couldn't uh, mm. have those relationships publicly, basically. Yeah. Oh my God. This is this is going to be it's going to be a wild collaboration. I cannot wait for this to happen. Um, yeah. There's but, a char- there's a there's a scene in the book where Charles Lawton eats a shit sandwich. So that's where you that's the direction we're going. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's your opening scene right there. Exactly. <laughs> No wonder he never directed again at the Night of the Hunter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, on that note, uh, a good note on which to end. Um, all I can say is, you know, uh, I hope that you get to see something in the cinema soon, and I hope it's not Bloodshot. <laughs> Don't worry, it won't be. <laughs> you take care of that. Seth Rogen, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. You too, thanks. Cheers, man. Okay, so that was Seth Rogen, a star of An American Pickle. And in fact, let's start with An American Pickle, Hell's Bells. You've seen this one in an actual screening room, haven't you? An yeah. actual cinema. It was so I exciting. Was there. Oh. It was amazing. Yes. <laughs> Did you socially distance? Oh, yeah. We were miles apart. Yeah. Um, Picture House Central, there were about 20 people in a 40, 400 seat cinema. It was amazing. Um, anyway, this is uh, based on Simon Rich's uh, short story published in four parts in The New Yorker. If you haven't read it, it's called Sellout. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite things I've ever read. Uh, so I went in, I'll be honest, predisposed to like this film, and it did not entirely disappoint me. There were bits I would have maybe have changed, but generally speaking, I think it got a lot of the spirit right. Um, and it's the story, as you said uh, in Seth Rogen's intro, about Herschel, um, who, who is a, an East European Jew in the 1910s, who uh, suffers an incredibly hard life and comes to New York with his wife, Sarah, in search of a better world. And instead, while chasing rats in a pickle factory, accidentally falls into a pickle vat uh, and is pickled uh, for a hundred years before awaking miraculously um, at the same age that he left. Hmm. Um, scientists, we're told, explain this very, very well and it all makes perfect sense. Okay? <laughs> so you've just got to go with that. Yeah, such a great scene. scene. It's a great scene. Um, and Herschel is reunited with his great grandson, Ben, who's also played by Seth Rogen. Um, they initially get along well. Herschel's enjoying the the craziness and the wonder of modern life uh, until he finds out that his wife's gravestone is now overshadowed by a sign for Russian vodka. This is an additional insult to injury given that, you know, the Cossacks used to come and murder everyone in their village re regularly. Um, and this basically causes a conflict between Ben and Herschel, which drives the rest of the film because Herschel swears that he will sort this out. He will restore the family honor. Ben doesn't give a crap, uh, is busy working on an app, which is something that Herschel doesn't understand. And uh, it's almost a war between them for, for much of the film's runtime. So there are bits here that I think really kind of drag a little bit. Um, but there's also some moments that, that really, really connect. There's comments on fame, there's comments on social media, there's comments on just uh, the way we live now that I think are, are brilliantly pointed and, and brilliantly sharp. Um, Herschel hiring interns, I think, is inspired. <laughs> Herschel starting his pickle business is inspired. Um, Herschel's obsession with seltzer water being the pinnacle of luxury is adorable. Um but there are times when it definitely drags. There are times when it maybe could have been sharper. Um, I think it's a very good performance from Seth Rogen, or a very good pair of performances from Seth Rogen. Mm. Um, but equally, sometimes you would have liked them to just, I guess, feel a little bit looser with it. Because obviously, I, I guess it had to be carefully planned so they could coordinate these two performances. But that does take away a little bit from some of his looseness that we've seen in other things. And Ben is such a kind of tied up... Um, repressed guy and Herschel is so fish out of water that it, they're both very much not in their element and I think that takes away from some of his kind of easiness on screen that he usually has um, but despite everything they're both kind of weirdly likable 
at the root of it. And so you do stay invested as as the story gets to weirder and weirder heights. So yeah, I just really enjoyed it. That might be because I was in a cinema again for the first time in way too long, but I did enjoy and, it. Uh, they could have been on Showgirls and you'd have been like, five stars, five stars. <laughs> <laughs> it really was the best. Though. And I, I love that it was in Pitch House because Pitch House always have that thing where they play uh, film scores before the film starts. Mm. So just being that, and then the video and audio quality, the the mere fact that my email wasn't plastered all over the screen as I was watching a film was it was, it was almost weird to a point, but in a really good way. Um, <laughs> yeah, because basically, just to explain that, they watermark when we get oh, online screeners as critics, they watermark it with our own email address so we can't yeah. pirate it. Because of course, otherwise, we would absolutely be pirating it, apparently. Yeah. But anyway, I, I you know largely agree with Helen. I did enjoy this one. We should also mention that the filming for this one was really interesting because what I've read is... Seth Rogen filmed the thing entirely with his beard and then mm-hmm. cut his beard and then filmed sort of the other side of things. And, you know, given sort of what happens with the weather at certain points in this film, that's very, very impressive. Um, mm. And I, I wish you know, I'd known that before I interviewed him, by the way. <laughs> of course. If I'd, done, um, if I'd done even a smidgen of research, <laughs> I would have discovered that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Seth Rogen, you don't really sort of think serious actor when you when you when you think of him. But I will always hold up Steve Jobs, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is an underrated movie as a whole, but and he is fantastic mm-hmm. in that movie. So it's good to see him back in, in, in that vein. Um I did like the comedy. I did think that at times it got overly coincidental. Uh but every time it's doing that, it's in service of trying to get last, and more often than not, it succeeds. So I can almost forgive it for that. I do wish that they really delved into topics like cancel, country, cancel culture and free speech more than they do. But again, the film always has to sort of go back to the central question, which is, what would it be like to meet your ancestor from 100 years ago? And that's a really sort of, you know, interesting question, which they delve into in really yeah. sort of satisfying ways. I actually enjoyed this more as a drama than a comedy um which is not something you typically say from a Seth Rogen film but I think it's absolutely true here I also like the score by Nami Melimad um which can be a little bit overbearing at times but it's also quite catchy in the moment I'm uh, looking forward to mm. be listening themes, uh, themes by Michael Giacchino I think as well oh really I missed that mm-hmm. amazing um mm-hmm. so so yeah I, I enjoyed this one yeah I thought this was terrific um Absolutely terrific. I read some really bad reviews of this movie going into it. Uh, one review in particular that says, you know, in the headline was, um, an American pickle crowbars two bad Seth Rogen performances into one movie. And I was like, what, what? the hell? What the hell? He's terrific yeah, in no. both roles. Yeah, um, he and he's not Seth rogen in any way, shape or form. Uh, yeah, I thought it was just delightful. I thought it was absolutely delightful. Uh, I had a feeling, that, you know, I thought the trailer was great. I had a feeling it might hook me when I saw the trailer, uh, and it absolutely did. And but what I loved about it was the way it it fires off, it sparks off in unexpected directions. And you mm-hmm. know, there there isn't a plot necessarily in this movie. It's just watching these two guys sort of cannonball off in the, you know in different directions. And uh, they're kind of spy versus spy rivalry, which is really interesting that they each send you know drive each other to greater depths or greater heights depending on your point of view. Um, but I thought you know almost every scene had is directed by Brandon Trost to is a DP turned director. He shot loads of Seth Rogen's movies over the years, so they've got a great working relationship. Uh, but he's got a really great sort of a Barry Sonnenfeld esque eye. I would say it feels a little bit like yeah, one of the right. Adams Family movies. I'd say maybe more than Tim Burton or Wes Anderson. Uh, it felt very much in a sort of sort of gothic vein of humor. Um, 
there's some really great stuff in this movie. Almost every scene has a great line. Almost every scene has a great little something about it, even if you don't necessarily like the way the movie, the direction in which the movie is heading. There's there's usually something to like about various scenes. And Rogan is fantastic in both roles. Um, we gave us three stars. I would go four, but uh, three stars is, as we always in the podcast, a recommendation. And you may, and you can actually see this one in the cinema. If you're listening to this in the States, Woo-hoo! you can see it on HBO Max this weekend, but you can see it only in cinemas in the UK, which is very, very exciting. Uh, next up, we're going to be reviewing an album? Hang on a second. What's happened? This is the Empire Podcast. We review <laughs> films. What's happening? Uh, but indeed, this is a visual album. It is Black is King from Beyonce, and it is available <laughs> on Disney+. Plus. I'm on. Is this a Disney++? Plus Plus? Or Disney Plus negative. What's happening? <laughs> so Disney Plus Plus Plus. Um, so yes, this is uh, <laughs> this is a visual album of sorts. Um, if you if you remember back in 2016, Beyonce released uh, a visual album of Lemonade, and this is very much sort of in that same vein. It's a contemporary re- reimagining of The Lion King. So it's telling the story of a young king's journey through betrayal, love, self identity, but it has music from. Uh, an album called The Lion King, The Gift, which was Beyonce's tie-in album to last year's remake of The Lion King. Uh, and if you remember that remake of The Lion King, despite the visual effects, which are incredible at times, and the star-studded voice cast, which is, again, incredible, that film sort of came and went from the discourse very quickly um, because mm-hmm. it was very adherent to the original. Um, mm-hmm. This is... Not, (laughs) to put it mildly. This is bold. This is unique. This is very, very different. Doing things with the Lion King concept, but putting her own spin on it. Um, And it it does so in a way in which it's brimming, and I mean overflowing with Black Pride, uh, which is something that, you know, has been true of Beyonce for a while now. Again, go and watch Lemonade, go and watch Homecoming. That definitely comes through, and it definitely comes through here. The last time I felt this amount of Black Pride and a movie was probably Black Panther. Um, so, you know, that just sort of goes to show how much of that there is. And that, you know, takes a lot of forms. The, the, the Black culture on display, the, the music itself is from artists from Nigeria, South Africa, Ghana, Cameroon. Um, so it's got a wide range of Black culture there. And then you look at the costumes, the costumes, Beyonce, the, the clothes that she wears. I think she, I, I lost count very quickly of the amount of, uh, changes that she has in this movie. It's a lot. Um, but somehow each one is more spectacular than the last. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. So there's that too. And it's just, it's interesting in that, um, you know, and we spoke about this on the Hamilton spoiler pod, but even though these songs, the, most of these songs are a year old. Again, that tie-in album was released around the same time as The Lion King. A lot of the lyrics from it hit differently now, given everything that's happened this year. So yeah. there's there's a song um, called Better, which is the song that kicks off uh, the movie. And it, w- w- one of the lyrics is, if you think you're insignificant, you better think again. Knowing what's happened, that line has far more poignancy than it did last year. Um, so this is actually... Uh, having it be released at this time is actually really great in a way that we didn't see coming. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, all hell, Queen Bay. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. I'm just the visuals are absolutely stunning. Shot in yeah. so a lot of it in Africa, but not all. Right, there was like Grand Canyons yeah, in there as well. And LA. It's, it starts in Beyonce's yeah. backyard, <laughs> literally, um, <laughs> and then so it goes from there, which is amazing. Yeah, but just so so the combination of that with these incredible costumes, these incredible dancers, these incredible performers. I mean, you could almost and it would be disrespectful but you could almost just put it on in the background with the sound down and it's still an amazing experience um but the way she's tied everything into the music is pretty pretty great as well so uh yeah i loved this there's some really interesting ideas in in bringing the lion king story to contemporary sort of human storytelling like for instance mm. the, the the stampede um which kills me faster in this uh film is reimagined as like a, a biker gang um, and there's, there's stuff like that, which is creatively sound, which I really, really enjoyed. There is one bit though where I was texting you going, wait, does this make Beyonce <laughs> and Jay-Z Timon and Pumbaa? Because yeah. I'm a little confused about the time, timing yeah. here, but I, I think they're more of a Woodwatch. metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's also mentioned that some of the songs are upgraded from their transition from album to screen. I mean, the the, the big song, which everyone will know from Beyonce's uh, Lion King last year is Spirit, um, which is the only sort of track from the Lion King, The Gift, which made it to the film. In Black is King, the first minute of that is Beyonce with a church choir. And when I tell you this thing just sounds heavenly. I mean, it's, mm. it's amazing. And there's, there's stuff like that. I loved Brown Skin Girl when I first heard it last year. When you pair it with the visuals of this film, I my my happiest moment, my happiest happiest moment watching this was actually when I saw Lupita Nyong'o on screen, because she's spoken in the past about not loving sort of how she looked when she was younger and sort of hating her black skin. So, seeing now, imagine imagine having that when you're younger and then being shouted out by Beyonce in a song and then actually appearing in the video of said song. I mean, the young Lupita is jumping for joy right now and she should be. Um, so, so that was great. It's just, it's, it's just amazing. Go see it. It's on Disney Plus. <laughs> it is indeed. It's on Disney Plus right now. Four stars. Four stars for Black <laughs> is King. Just holding four fingers up to the camera. Um, <laughs> Four Excellent stars in for Black now. is King. It is. It's good. You know, really, you know, the, the listeners at home really getting a sense of it. It's, What's he doing? What's he doing? Just waving four fingers around. Um, yes, very, very excited to check that one out on Disney Plus this weekend. Uh, and something else I'll be checking out, uh, although from behind several sofas and several cushions, is the new horror film Host, which is on Shudder and has been, been creating quite the stir on the old socials of late. Full disclosure. I started this last night, but then I stopped because I was like, you know what? If I'm going to watch this film, I need th- it needs to be light outside. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was getting already kicked out. Like I, I wanted to have some amount of sleep, and if I, I knew if I watched the film last night, that wouldn't have happened. Um, so, well, so yeah. that's interesting. <laughs> I wonder if one of the reasons why this film has been catching on is because most people are watching it on their computers and they feel like they are part of a Zoom call as they're watching it, and so perhaps mm-hmm. that that feeling of immersiveness is is. Really really, you know, really prevalent in a way. Uh, Jimbo. Hello. 
tell us about Host. So Host is directed by Rob Savage, written by him and Gemma Hurley. And it's kind of the latest screen life movie. I guess it was inevitable, you know, after films like Unfriended and Searching, now that we've gone into lockdown, like there was always going to be, you know, a slew of films that take place in lockdown and embrace the fact that we all communicate now exclusively via video chat because <laughs> we can't see other humans. Um, yeah. And this one essentially is a, about a group of friends who gather online during lockdown in the UK to attempt a seance over Zoom zoom as you do um and uh, it all starts it's actually very well in the first 10 minutes you get 10 minutes of setup and you really get a feel for who these characters are they're all friends there's one friend who drops in and out you get a feeling for the dynamics between them who gets on with whom it's actually really cleverly done and there's a real familiarity to this because this is what we do all the time now zoom is such a part of our lives um other platforms think- are available but other platforms are available <laughs> what i think works particularly well about this though is the way they manage, he manages to, at once you've got a, a cast of characters together, but not together. So you get the sense of isolation that works so well in horror. And you also get the sense of them interacting with each other. And those two things play against each other very nicely in this. Um, I must admit, when I went into this, I was kind of rolling my eyes a little bit. I was thinking, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, a Zoom horror. What is it? 56 minutes. Jesus Christ. This is really fucking good. It's incredibly tense. And it's really, really bold in the way it does things. There's a few, there are a few little... um sort of cliche type moments in there but they've they've quite slickly done and there's some real inventive use of of props like a, there's a selfie stick bit at one point there's a use of zooms uh, the ability on zoom to do animated backgrounds that's done very cleverly as well and bit by bit when they sort of try this seance and ultimately end up summoning a demonic entity pazumzu i've called it uh you know <laughs> they uh it all starts to go a little bit tits up you know it's not what i would call overtly gory but it's quite shocking at times and it's really really effective in its use of scares and not just you know there are a few jump scares in there absolutely but like i say inventive things like using like when the lights go out using the flash of an old sort of instant polaroid camera and um and you know people getting disconnected and reconnected and there's even some fun to be had with uh you know the film's runtime there's it's no uh it's no accident that the runtime corresponds roughly speaking with zoom's limit on free conversations uh, and they have a lot of fun with that as well so they have a lot of fun with the platform he really embraces the medium but I, I just thought this was incredibly well done the actors I don't know how much of this was directly scripted and how much of it was improvised but it is so naturalistic like so naturalistic you can absolutely believe that you are just eavesdropping on a bunch of friends having a zoom call like it's not forced at all really really great performances really really effective um, genuinely the best horror film I've seen in a while I thought this was absolutely fantastic uh, we gave this four stars uh, a very richly deserved four stars we are going to be doing a spoiler special for this with Rob Savage the writer director Gemma Hurley co-writer and uh, Jed Shepard who I don't think you mentioned uh, Jimbo uh, the other co-writer on oh, this sorry We're- yes uh, we're going to be doing a spoiler special with them, uh, hopefully in the next few days, and that will be up on our spoiler special subscription channel at some point, along with all sorts of incredible other things. Our second part of our Hamilton Act 2 spoiler special, our Scott Pilgrim vs. World spoiler special with Edgar Wright, our Flash Gordon 40th anniversary spoiler special with director Mike Hodges, and our Pitch Black 20th anniversary spoiler special yes. with writer-director <laughs> David Toohey. All of those will be up in the month of August somehow. So there you go. It's well worth your uh, it's well worth your time subscribing to our spoiler special channel if you don't already. Go to my Twitter at Chris Hewitt and check my pinned tweet for details. 
Last but not least this week is the aforementioned endings beginnings in which Shailene Woodley finds herself torn between Sebastian, Stan and Jamie Dornan. Oh, I know how you feel, Shailene. I feel yes. your pain. I love Triangle with Christian Grey and the Winter Soldier. It's every girl's worst nightmare. <laughs> I mean, okay, I have to come back at this point to my friend Maria Lewis's immortal line, who has that much dick thrown at them? <laughs> well, Shailene Woodley, apparently. There is a, you know... Something in this, which is that she basically swears off men for six months. So naturally, Saul's law would dictate that that's when hot men uh, turn dictate. up. <laughs> uh, but she's such a fucking nightmare of a person. Like she is such a walking disaster. Not without any reason, but maybe without some of the reason that you would need to really get behind her in her uh, struggles. That it does. It does make this a very frustrating watch because you're kind of into it for the first half hour or so. You're kind of thinking, okay, this is, you know, kind of cool indie vibe. This is a very much a character piece. I mean, everybody's very good in it in terms of performances. Uh, I think Drake Doramus, the director, is very good at getting those kind of performances out of people and getting this kind of naturalistic feel to his conversations for the most part. Um, but you just get to a point where you're so busy eye-rolling at her that you can't focus <laughs> on what's actually happening anymore. and. There comes a point in the film that I'm not going to spoil, but I was so irritated by the end of this film that I actually texted Chris all in caps about it because he was mm -hmm. the one who'd watched it at the time. She did. I, I, I just, it made me want to hurl things. Um, and and it, I'm, I'm not saying by that that she's choosing Jamie Dornan over the Winter Soldier or something because, you know, mm -mm. that would be crazy too. But no, <laughs> that's not even it. It's just the, the, the film itself at that point takes the biggest eye roll of all and I just wanted to hurl things. So I think it's got problems is what I'm saying. I think if you're going for naturalistic and relatable, I'm not 100% sure this is the cast for it, but I'll allow it because everybody in Hollywood films is handsomer and prettier than the rest of us and that's fine. Um, I think what, where it really loses you is just in refusing these, in refusing to let its characters ever act rationally and and refusing any sort of just sense it's just a really frustrating <laughs> frustrating watch it's like jesus christ people you were so it's close maddening. to getting yourself on you know in some kind of order and then you just don't bother and maybe that's realistic and everything but i d why would i be rooting for you to just i mean mm. you're doing enough rooting maybe yourself so that's no! fine <laughs> i promised people knob gags at the beginning i did not expect <laughs> helen to be the main deliverer of said knob gags <laughs> I just find it incredibly frustrating. So, uh, good performances, beautiful looking, but no. Props for the sort of 90s erotic thriller-esque sex scenes, though, like the knee trembler on a kitchen counter and a variety of other bits there. Um, I, I mean, those were the best bits of the film, if we're honest. Yeah. <laughs> but the emphasis heavily on the bits, although we should point out that you uh, see Sebastian Stan's bare bottom. Uh, Steve Rogers would be so appalled. He would faint away, dead away. He'd I'm not go, sure oh. appalled is the word. Yeah, swoon, maybe. But It's not so much Bucky as fucky in this one. Um, oh, I've been sitting on that one for a while. I have been sitting on that one for a while. Uh, you see his endings, but not his beginnings. Oh, gosh. Is the, uh, the one I've also been sitting on. Uh, you see his Falcon, but not his Winter Soldier. <laughs> it's another way of looking see, at it. That one seems the wrong way around to me, but okay. Anyway. Really? You see his Winter Soldier, but not his Falcon? I don't know. <laughs> it's possible we're getting into the weeds a little bit on this. <laughs> anyway. I, oh. I, you know, lastly agree with Helen. Um, it can't help but be naturalistic because Drake DeRamus, he has a reputation of sort of, you know, 
filming all those films uh, with having heavy improvisation and all of its films are basically sem- semi-improvised, so it can't help but feel naturalistic. My big thing with this, there's so much lip service paid to making us think that Daphne is great. The amount of characters you say Daphne is great throughout this film is insane. <laughs> we don't actually get to see why she is so great. That is the main issue, aside from you know the, the lack of sort of rational thinking, which Helen alluded to. And it's frustrating because, you know, the cast and all this, the cast is, is great. Um, but for, for me, Woodley especially is someone who I've been a fan of for a while. Um, I think she's an excellent actor. I think she's so affecting, so naturalistic with every emotion she's going for. It's just annoying to me that she hasn't yet found that really big, satisfying role that really gels with her abilities to take her mm-hmm. to the next level because I think she's fantastic. It's just that she hasn't really found that role. I mean, I, I know she's really good in Big Little Life, but in terms of movie mm-hmm. roles, it just hasn't been there for mm-hmm. her. And this one isn't it either, unfortunately. I agree. It's it's. I, I found this 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 film very much fails my Bellend test in the all three of them are raging Bellend. I mean, we've already established you don't see his Winter Soldier, so so it, it literally fails the Bellend test. Um, oh but yes, all three of them are just magnificent twats, and it's just it's quite difficult to get past that thing. And it it lapses a little bit into kind of indie indie wistful romance bingo in places as well in terms of cliches. Uh, and it's it's the opposite of Host, and this is not a tight film at all it is really kind of loose and flabby and mm. and feels a little bit sags uh, unlike the stars it. in fairness yeah, no, <laughs> unlike the stars themselves it is loose and flabby there's no sagging you, no you sagging can there. bounce a quarter Jeez. off its abs um <laughs> yeah it's it, it has it has it has some nice moments in it but yeah just just i i found, I found this maddening and I, I very much wanted to punch everyone in it for just the, being the, stupid the, and doing stupid things the the bit where i was just like i mean i was texting her and watching this as well but the bit where I was just like, are you serious? Was what I'm going to say is it, it, it involved a dog, and that oh, scene God. is just, oh, are you freaking kidding me right now? Oh, yeah. What is what is the canine <laughs> for? I can never unsee this. I don't know. I mean, gosh, yeah, but. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Helen's like, I don't know, the dog had a pretty good view to me. <laughs> that, that bit wasn't the worst, you know. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying the bit. That perceives that. I know, that, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, no, it, we're all aware it, of the bit that Helen is looking yeah. at at that particular moment. What? It was the dog. It's a uh-huh. very cute dog. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Mm. I th- thought it was fine as these things go. I thought it was well acted. Um, yeah, I agree with with you about some of the characters, but it, it had enough uh, interesting and even fun moments uh, to to see me through. I thought, although I don't think it's a patch on anything that Drake Dreamus has made before. Although fans of Sebastian Stan's bare bottom <laughs> will be in hog heaven with this or one, or any because- of his other bits, I would say. His face yeah. is also in it, so yes. That's but we've a, seen that's his face before, is what I'm saying. We've seen it. It's, it's been in loads of movies. Sometimes it's obscured by a mask, but sometimes it's not. But what we haven't seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Helen, <laughs> is his bare bottom. <laughs> Maybe it's in the deleted scenes of Civil War. Who knows? But uh, I don't think so. So, if you if you were a fan of that, if that sounds like something you want to see in a motion picture. <laughs> then check out Endings Beginnings, uh, which is available on demand this weekend. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. What the hell has happened? For this um, buttock-themed episode of the Empire Podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, there was like no Botox for like, you know, the entire podcast. And then the last 10 minutes <laughs> has just been, wow. 
made up That's for it That's not true. I mean, we are all of us naked from the waist down. <laughs> I thought we weren't going to reveal that, James. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> that's it for this week's Emperor Podcast. I've done that bit. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by someone not entirely sure who yet. There are irons in the fire. But until then, until the auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Amon Warman. Peace. Trademark, copyright, all rights reserved, <laughs> 2020. It is goodbye from James Dyer, a.k.a. Pazumzu. Goodbye, Christopher. <laughs> uh, Amon's name this week is Black as Woman, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Helen's name is Enemy Brine. It was an American pickle joke. I like that. Mm. I think that's great. That's, that's a solid good. pun. That's good. That's <laughs> clever. I like that one. Uh, so it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara as well. Doodaloo. There we go. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. As I said before, this podcast is dedicated to our good friend, Seb Patrick. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye bye.